Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies, and in this case, TV shows, with history. Today, we're going to continue our look at the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers. Now, if you haven't listened to the first part of this, I would recommend that you go back to the last episode of Based on a True Story, where we covered episodes number one through five of Band of Brothers. And today, we're going to continue our look at the series as we cover episodes six and seven as Easy Company is in Bastogne. That means that we'll be getting Marty Morgan back on the line here in a moment. Marty has helped filmmakers and game developers work towards better historical accuracy. For example, he was the military advisor on the video game Call of Duty World War II. He also worked with Dr. Stephen Ambrose, who was the author of the Band of Brothers book. He received Dr. Ambrose's collection after Ambrose's death in 2002. But he is also an author himself. One of Marty's books is called Down to Earth, the 507th Parachute Infantry Regiment in Normandy. And it tells a story of the 507th Airborne, a group of soldiers who, like the 506th that we see in Band of Brothers, fought in the same battles that we see depicted the 506th fighting in Band of Brothers. Before we start today's discussion, let's set up our game. Two truths and a lie. Now, if you're new to the show, here is how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true. That means one of them is a straight-up lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, the real René Lemaire probably never met the real Eugene Rowe, like we see in the series. Number two, it was on the afternoon of December 26th when Cobra King drove into Bastogne and put an end to the fighting. Number three, Band of Brothers' depiction of Lieutenant Norman Dyke was, as Marty puts it, deeply inaccurate. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts. They're scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. Okay, now it's time to chat with Marty Morgan about the historical accuracy of episodes six and seven of Band of Brothers. We left off at the end of episode number five, which means today we'll be picking up at episode six, Bastogne. In the show, when Easy Company enters Bastogne, they have a new commander in Lieutenant Dyke, and we'll talk more about him later because on the show they talk about him a little more in episode seven. But for now, we find out that Easy has also suffered heavy losses. Even with replacements, they're only at 65% strength. On top of all of that, they uh, we find out at the beginning of episode six, they're also low on ammo. They don't have nearly enough warm clothes, and there's a dense fog covering the area, and that's keeping planes from resupplying the men. In the show, we see General McAuliffe visit, and he basically tells them there's no backup, and there's a lot headed your way, so do whatever it takes to hold the line. Can you give us some more context around what was going on here overall and what Easy Company's part was in Bastogne? The southern shoulder of the Battle of the Bulge. It reaches its ultimate climax with the fighting in and around the city of Bastogne. The Battle of the Bulge roughly falls into three geographical areas that we designate just because it becomes sort of a convenience in understanding this battle, which unfolds across a battlefield that's about 1,500 square miles. It's in an absolutely enormous battlefield, and it's, a, it's an extremely complicated battle. 
And by dividing it effectively into three sections, it gives us chunks that makes it somewhat easier for us to digest all of the information associated with them. And we call them North Shoulder, South Shoulder, and Center. And the North Shoulder is basically telling the story of things that happen in the vicinity of where the U.S. 99th Division was, where the 4th Division, 1st Division, where they were located in and around um, the twin villages of Rokrath and Kreenkelt, around um, uh, the area where Kumpf Krupa Piper will ultimately make a name, an infamous name for itself with massacres leading to the Bunye Crossroads massacre that we know as the Malmedy Massacre. The center part of the battle, just dealing mainly with things associated with St. Feath, but then on the southern end of the battlefield, what we see is an entire German army corps that crosses the Ur River out of Luxembourg, out of Germany into Luxembourg, and then drives across the northern tip of the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg until it ultimately reaches the crossroads town of Bastogne. This is setting the table for our story insofar as the element that's driving that assault it has to it has to reach the crossroads at Bastogne in its effort to can continue moving westward uh, because if you can if you imagine the way that the german forces are situated in the battle toward the right is toward the north shoulder toward the left is toward the south shoulder the south shoulder has to overcome american defenses in luxembourg reach Bastogne, and then make use of the road lit network to the west of Bastogne, where you have basically seven roads leading into the city and leading out of the city. That force had to overcome all the Americans in Luxembourg, reach Bastogne, use the road network to its west as a part of this covering mission as they sweep to the northwest to approach river crossing sites of the Meuse River, which will put them into position to cover the main force that will retake the Belgian port city at Antwerp. At the outset of the battle, something that heavily defines the experience of combat is that American units end up fighting with more dedication and more drive than the Germans had anticipated. The Germans had expected that by penetrating the front line or the MLR, the main line of American resistance, that they would be moving then beyond the main line of resistance into rear areas. And that in rear areas, they would be experiencing troops that were not necessarily the high, the high end of combat forces. And they expected that because of that, they would move faster. Overwhelming the combat units piled up on the main line of resistance, get past them, and then you're in the rear area and you're dealing with troops that are going to possess equipment that's not entirely appropriate for fighting um, a heavily mechanized force, and that you're going to encounter units that are non-combat arms units that will therefore be incapable of putting up an effective defense. That's what the Germans banked on. That is not what they got. What they got was an American army that fought so extraordinarily well that I continue to learn about it and I continue to be amazed by the way that the American army in its moment of greatest crisis held itself together and continued to fight on against uh, what I believe is the greatest enemy that it has ever confronted on the battlefield. And the Bastogne story illustrates that point. I don't want to say better than any others, but it illustrates that point quite well. Because at Bastogne, there is early recognition by the American military that the Germans are moving westward. The American military very quickly diagnoses what the German plan is. 
and in recognizing where the Germans were going, which is push to the west, sweep up to the Muz, recapture Antwerp. As the Americans recognized that this is what was going on, the Americans very quickly scrambled to send reinforcing units to critical areas on the map because the American military did not possess the luxury of being able to cover every point on the map. There just weren't enough people. There weren't enough men with rifles. And so the American military had to pick and choose where it would make it stand. Bastogne was chosen because mainly the United States Army had the luxury of a little bit more time. And that luxury and time is something that I feel like we have to, we have an obligation to mention this at the outset. And that the luxury of being able to move the 101st Airborne Division from its barracks, its garrison experience at Mormonal to move the 101st a distance of just over 100 miles to Bastogne. The American military had the interval of time to do that, mainly because of the fact that men of the U.S. Army's 28th Infantry Division put up a, a heck of a good fight in northern Luxembourg. As German troops pushed across the Ore River into Luxembourg, the American military put up a fight that slowed them down at several critical places. Just to mention three quickly, the 4th Division puts up a really good fight at a place called Echternach in Luxembourg on the Sewer River, right across from Germany. The river is the boundary there. You had two, effectively two regiments of the 28th Infantry Division, the 109th and the 110th, that put up an extremely amazing uh, delaying action as they pull back away from the Ur River into uh, places like Dikirsch in Luxembourg and particularly at a place called Clairvaux. And then ultimately the division's headquarters has to retreat from the city of Wilts in northern Luxembourg. And all of that is buying time. That's buying the time that it took to reposition the 101st from Mormelon in France to Bastogne in Belgium. And that's no mean feat. And to say it briefly like that, it just feels so trivial. It feels like I'm not communicating the proper depth of the crisis because the American military does this in three days because the 101st Airborne Division is already there and in position with other units. Another critical point that I must mention, because when we imagine what happens at, at Bastogne during the days and weeks that'll follow, particularly during the era of the siege of Bastogne, that period during which for about a week, the city was completely surrounded by the enemy. During that time period, it wasn't just the 101st Airborne Division in the city of Bastogne. You had a, a force of about 11,000 men, and out of that 11,000, you had about 7,500 of them belonging to the 101st Airborne Division. So the 101st had the greatest number of men in the city. But then you had two combat commands from the 9th Armored Division and the 10th Armored Division. It's critically important to recognize that they were there. In addition to uh, attached field artillery battalions, tank destroyer battalions, you had, in other words, assets other than just the 101st Airborne Division in it just goes without saying that they have to be at least mentioned. Now, our story relates just to the 101st Airborne. So we're going to, we're going to dedicate ourselves to talking about that. And that is incorrectly the emphasis of where we're going to go from here. But it would be wrong not to acknowledge the fact that there were other Americans in the perimeter at Bastogne that contributed to the victory of holding out during this brief German siege. And Easy Company factors into this by 
loading up onto trucks and carrying out what they call a tailgate jump, which is they load onto a truck, they drive all the way across, you know, bouncing up and down roads just to reach the city of Bastogne. They detruck, and from the point that they detruck, they're north of the town and they move then into positions just on the northern outskirts of the city. And as they reach those positions, they're settling in for the big drama that is about to unfold. They're moving into position on the 18th and the 19th. And the reality then is that when the German military ultimately makes contact with the American perimeter around Bastogne, which is contact that occurs before dawn on December 19th, just north of Bastogne at a town called Noville, where a composite team has been positioned, a team that we refer to as Team DeSobri, led by an American major named William DeSobri. By the time that the Germans contact that team pre-dawn hours, December 19th, you have over 10,000 Americans in the city of Bastogne. They got there because the men of the 28th Division in Luxembourg bought them time enough to get there. So everything was frantic. Everything was sort of a desperate scramble. But this desperate scramble, in the end, pays this vast dividend because the enemy never manages to capture the city of Bastogne. The enemy is therefore not capable of using the road network leading to and then from the city as they move beyond and to the west of Bastogne in this overall campaign to recapture Antwerp. On the, the German side, how many how many were they facing? Because we don't, we don't really see much of that in, in the show, but you're saying the, the city's surrounded, so I'm sh- I'm assuming that they had superior numbers. They did. And eventually the force, if you count everybody involved, you could count up to between 75,000 and 80,000 men. So, so it's, they, they outnumber the Americans, not by close numbers. They overwhelmingly outnumber the American force. Now, to qualify that and to put a sharper point on it, it's not that at any specific and given time you had 80,000 Germans attacking a force of 11,000 Americans. But you, you had overall multiple German divisions that in their overall strength could number that. And Bastogne was basically in the middle of the road that they were trying to follow. And so during the, the siege, there's a moment where forces flow around Bastogne because the Germans weren't stupid. If the plan began to change, like a big weird mythology about German fighting forces in World War II that I hear repeated over and over again, even by people who should know better, is they, they they like to imagine this fantasy of German troops were like robots and they followed their orders to the letter and they didn't have the flexibility and freedom that Americans had to improvise. This is not true. This is so completely untrue as to be as absurd because the Germans, they did have latitude to improvise within a plan and they could syncopate their way through something to the extent that if you encounter an American strong point, the instinct will then be to engage it, keep them there, and then f- attempt to maneuver around that strong point. So the Germans eventually do that by flowing to the north of the city and then also to the south of the city, which is what produces the circumstances that lead to Bastogne being surrounded. Uh, but there was still basically out there surrounding the city this numerically superior force of German, not just infantry, but also mechanized infantry and units that were combat experienced. Units that are, that were kind of being pushed to the limit themselves. A big theme in the two episodes that we're talking about today is the way that the men were being pushed to the limit. 
which I think is such a terrific theme for them have to, to have chosen to emphasize during these episodes. And the Germans were experiencing that too, so that for every hardship an American is undergoing, a German is also undergoing it too. And I mention it not to try to develop sympathies with German fighting forces, but I mention it to say that there's a greater burden on them as the force on the offensive than there is on the Americans as the force on the defensive. And for them, that burden was exacerbated to a significant degree by the fact that they're dealing with some pretty gnarly weather conditions throughout all of this. So the Americans are shivering in foxholes and the Germans are shivering too, while also bearing this added burden of attempting to lead a mechanized maneuver battle against a a well-entrenched enemy who was pretty well-armed and extremely dangerous. Earlier episodes of the show, we did see the men of Easy Company withstanding. There's pl- plenty of artillery fire, so we've seen that up until now. But this time in this episode is a little bit different because they're in the woods and the artillery is just shattering the trees. We see you know shards of wood going all over the place like shrapnel. How accurate was what we saw happening in the show? Interestingly, it's a little bit of two things. It's a little accurate and a little inaccurate. It's accurate to the extent that it is depicting, with great accuracy, I believe, a reality of World War II combat, which is, first of all, that the great killer of the battlefield is artillery. On the battlefield of the Second World War, artillery kills more people than anything else. It kills more people than nuclear bombs. The artillery is by far the greatest killer on the battlefield. Which is why, to this day, we recognize the artillery as the, well, we recognize it with this nickname that people that are in the um, artillery branch, in the Marine Corps and in the Army, artillery is the god of war. Or sometimes you hear artillery, it's uh, king of battle. And it's because the artillery doesn't care if it's light or dark, hot or cold, if it's raining or dry. The artillery always works. It works in ways that air power will never work. Air power can't work, especially during World War II. The artillery, as the king of battle, is the greatest weapon on the battlefield that anybody has. And, you know, not to keep laboring this point, but we often get distracted when we comprehend Nazi Germany during World War II. We get distracted into things like their high-end technology programs that have had Gertungswaffe, their their vengeance weapons, like the V-1 buzz bomb, the V-2 rocket, the V-3 supergun. We get distracted in admiring those weapons. And the reality is, is that those weapons never turned in results that could even begin to compare to the results that German artillery did. So one thing that I know the first time that I saw these episodes, particularly episode seven, to me, it's the most compelling and accurate depiction of the true, just terrifying danger that artillery presents. But then at the same time, um, they're over and over again referring to them as 88s. And it's pretty, the pretty good indication is that there's no 88s involved. There, there ends up being an 88 in FOI, and we can talk about that. But what we end up with are Americans on the receiving end who, as time goes by, they begin to tell their stories and they begin to relate them to people who are interested, like family members and historians with names like Stephen Ambrose. And they all made assumptions about what was being directed at them. And the most frequent thing that you hear is the 88 millimeter gun. And the 88 millimeter gun is far less prolific than veteran accounts would have you believe. So 
on the one hand, we're getting this really, uh, I feel like this very compelling and thought-provoking depiction of how powerful artillery is on the battlefield in these episodes. But at the same time, it's just over and over again, we're bombarded with 88. And the reality is 88s, while they probably did participate a little bit, the big killers were the Germans had a 105 millimeter field gun and a 150 millimeter field gun. They probably should say field howitzers. They had 105 and 150 millimeter field howitzers and then 105 and 50, 150 millimeter field guns. And those weapons were excruciatingly effective and accurate. In addition to that, something that kind of just gets blended within these episodes is that the Germans made extensive and effective use of mortars, particularly their model 1934 M80 millimeter mortar, which was a powerful weapon, which to the on the receiving end could give you an impression of artillery. And so there's not a lot of definition to this very day about exactly what weapons were directed against the men of Easy Company during this time period. We do know it was artillery. The veterans accounts testify to 88 millimeter. There's an 88 millimeter in Foy. The reality is that it was probably a mix of all of the above, that it was probably that 88, probably 105s and 150s, and maybe even mortars at different times. And so they're providing you with this extremely, what I think is an achievement in depicting how effective artillery was in combat that really no other movie has matched yet. And they're also depicting a reality of combat with Germany during the Second World War. And that is they're depicting the tree bursts that are sort of famously a part of these episodes. And the tree bursts are being caused by the way that the Germans fused their their rounds. And that the fusing could be, they're effectively point detonating fuses that could be used on mortar rounds and could also be used on artillery. And point detonation provided for some adjustability so where there was a plunger that sets off the high explosive inside the shell body. And you could make some adjustments to that plunger for sensitivity. So you can make it really insensitive so that the round could come down, contact the earth. And then as it begins to get uh, resistance, as it punches a hole into the, into the ground, only then does it detonate. You could also dial off or dial back the sensitivity of that plunger to such an extent that as the shell or mortar round descends down through tree branches, the slightest contact with anything would set off the explosive charge. The Germans understood what they were up against. They understood that they were dealing with people that were fighting from prepared positions and that, believe it or not, when you're up against someone in prepared positions, even with artillery, it's very hard to kill them. When men dig into a hole, really only the, the only thing that can get them out of that is a direct hit, unless they have no cover overhead. And then if you could develop an air burst above them, you will distribute fragmentation down on top of them that, that can kill them even though they're in holes. So that if you just had the sensitivity on point detonating rounds set to where they only went off when they hit solid ground, if everyone's dug in, everybody's in for a wild ride and a lot of noise, but the artillery bombardment is only going to be effective if they get a direct hit. However, if you have people in dug holes, positions that would otherwise provide a lot of protection, and you dial back your sensitivity and the, you're producing tree bursts, you can kill everybody with bursts that are directly above them. So this was a specific technique that the Germans used in adjusting and manipulating the fusing on the projectiles, either mortar or artillery, 
to kill people who they understood were probably in foxholes. And so when the Germans advanced the mortar rounds or the artillery rounds to the weapons to fire them, they did so with this sort of keen familiarity with what's going to be on the receiving end. And they knew to dial back sensitivity so that you could produce the tree bursts and kill people that were otherwise protected by foxholes. Then also on a tactical level, one thing that they do that is, I think, quite well depicted in uh, episode seven is that uh, they did something that it's, it's an ugly reality of war and it's a reality that everybody was involved in. And that is that when they would pick up a target for an artillery concentration and they would deliver effectively a time on target concentration, meaning it's at night, you can't necessarily see the target as the artillery fire support mission is being fired. You're not able to evaluate how effective you are. You're just sort of bombarding an area target for a certain quantity of time. That's the fire mission. What they tended to do was they would have round one where you hit them for a time on target concentration for a certain period of time. Then you lift fire. You give them a few minutes for everybody to start getting out of their holes and and tending to their wounded. And then you hit them with a second round and a second time on target concentration, and you're catching people outside of their holes. It's fiendish and it's cruel, and that's what modern war looks like. And that's, I think, very well depicted in episode seven. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earnin. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. A lot of episode six in the show revolves around one of the medics named Eugene Rowe. And we see him on the front lines helping the soldiers the best he can. It limited supplies, but he does the best he can. Uh, we also see him going back into town where he meets a nurse named Renee. And the two strike up a bond over their shared experiences of the hell that war is and everybody that they've lost. Was Renee a real person in this this interaction between Eugene and Renee actually based on reality? Yes, Renee was a real person. Her family was from the area around Bastogne. 
she was at the time of all of this 30 years old. She chose to stay and to help. This brings us into this fascinating mes- uh, meditation about Band of Brothers because the relationship that we see develop between them, which I think is beautifully presented by two actors who are so very, very good. In fact, I'm just going to say outright that the Emmy Award for Best Actor goes to Shane Taylor. I think he is, I think he carries this whole episode and he is so good. He is so good in this episode. The actress who portrayed Renee Lemaire, her name is Lucy Jean, and I think she is absolutely brilliant in this minor, not I want to say minor, but this role that doesn't have a lot of on-screen time, that doesn't have a great deal of dialogue. But anyway, the and this is where the meditation comes in. One thing that we do know is that Eugene Rowe and Rene Lemaire didn't cross paths. They didn't have opportunities to interact with one another, to develop a bond. And this was this was created as a as a product of screenplay writing for this episode. This episode is written by an absolute wizard, an absolute master of screenplay writing, Bruce McKenna. And what Bruce had to do was he had to confront a couple of realities like, how do you make a complicated story simple? How do you make people follow these events? And what can we do to develop this and tell the Rene LaMere story while we're telling the Eugene Rowe story? And what he has done is he has taken two real stories and merged them in a way that they were not actually merged in reality. And I do not have a problem with it. What I welcome about this sort of thing is that although they never met, they never had opportunities to interact with one another. Maybe they did. I think it's highly unlikely, but maybe they did. That's all we got. We have no proof. At any rate, what Bruce McKenna did was he chose Rene Lemaire and he created a story where the two of them interact with one another. And I feel like it produces the beautiful meditation on what was going on during the siege of Bastogne. Because, for example, just think if I had written the screenplay where everything would be 100% accurate and it would be 100% boring and miserable and uninteresting, there wouldn't be dynamic, and you wouldn't have this moment where you see the two of them interacting. And these two actors, the way that they interacted with one another was not the, the the typical soupy melodrama that you would expect out of lesser writers. What you get are two actors where she's obviously a conventionally attractive female, he's obviously a conventionally attractive male, and there's obviously a, some something going on. It almost feels wrong to say that there's chemistry because in the middle of a very terrible reality, the two of them connect on some level and they interact and it's all compelling character development that makes you care. And what I love about episode six, and just for the record, episode six is my favorite episode of the series. What I think is so fantastic about it is that now, today, 20 years later, people go and visit Renee Lemaire's grave. And it's because of Bruce McKenna, Tom Hanks, and Steven Spielberg. And I think that is worth the price of massaging and bending the historical timeline a little bit to put characters within a context when one with each other that did not actually exist. And it made people care because people cared about that interaction. People looked at these two actors who interact with one another beautifully and create what I think is one of the most heart-wrenching sequences in the series. I'm sure you're 
familiar with it. It's toward the end of, of episode six, and it's depicting Eugene has, is in Bastogne. He has taken, and I can't remember who he has taken in, but they, he arrives at the aid station. Rene Lemaire is in there being assisted by a Congolese um, nurse. More on that in a second. A casualty comes in who has, uh, as I recall, he's, he's very badly wounded. He's got a chest wound. And it depicts you blood everywhere. And it's this very compelling scene that shows Eugene and Renee attempting to save him. In the end, they don't save him. And it's just, I, when I, I watched all of this again this morning. And I watched that, this interaction just over that one set piece between the two of them. I watched this interaction like five times in a row. And I was just like, my God, these people were good. This was such such good storytelling and such perfect acting because you see Eugene stand up and he shouts and he shows what I think is sort of typical male grief because male grief, you heard it here first, male grief often looks like anger. And so he expresses that in a way that is not Broadway and stupid and exaggerated. It's very gritty and very earthy. And then he turns and the two of them just lock eyes and you get these dirty over the shoulder shots of the two of them. Mainly there's a shot, there's a shot that they have one over her shoulder looking at him, one over his shoulder looking at her. And the shot over his shoulder looking at her, she's staring at him and she just gets, I don't know how this actress summoned it, but she just gets the slightest little chin quiver. And it's heart wrenching where I, what I love about the scene so much, it offers us something we don't see much these days. It offered us subtlety, it, and, and it was absolutely beautiful. And what I love about it is that I remember it 20 years ago when I fought, saw it for the first time, and I was so stricken by that scene. And that scene led me to Renee Lemaire's grave. It led me to care about her and be interested in her story. And here, I think, overall, we find the entire value of the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers. It's not a war documentary. It's not a war movie. It's a, it's a drama that made us care about a cast of real people. And we still care about them after 20 years. There's a lot of good. There's a lot of good there. There's some bad, which we will be talking about in episode seven. But there's more good that we are overwhelmed by the overall good deed that this series served the historical continuum because I wrote a book about a parachute infantry regiment, a regiment of paratroopers who fought in all of these same battles. And I care about them. Yeah, I care about them deeply. And Stephen Ambrose's writing and then this, the filmmaking by Hanks, Spielberg, Bruce McKenna, this episode was directed by David Leland. All of these people made me care about another group of people. And I wonder if those, I wonder if they sit back and think about the time that they spent working on Band of Brothers and go, that was the highlight of my career. I wonder if they do. If I ever had an audience with any of them, I would love to ask them, was Band of Brothers the highlight of your career? And I'd love to hear what they had to say about it. But what they did, I said, I think they produced something that has served the overall greater good. And it promoted awareness and interest and enthusiasm about the history of the Second World War. And I'm always 100% in favor of that. Well, you talk about that scene with Renee and Eugene, and I think for me, that scene over the, the guy who dies, you know, just blood everywhere, was almost a prelude like to the scene later on where 
they're both sitting there and, and she's going to give him some chocolate. You can tell they're fed up with dealing with all this death and, and everything. And then a truck comes in, calls Renee, and she doesn't hesitate. She gets up and goes, goes to help another person. You can just tell that what's going on in her mind and just all, like she's about to crack, but nope. Okay. I'm called, called to go help more people. So no hesitation going off to help more people. And I think it was amazing acting. It was really, really well done. I think so too, as you've already heard. And also I, I, what I love about Band of Brothers too, on an overall level, just that one set piece when Renee and Eugene are sitting outside after this anonymous, nameless GI has just died in pain and agony. And the two of them are sitting outside and she's got dirty hands and she's breaking off pieces of chocolate with her dirty hands. And the two of them are sitting there in awkward silence, chattering a just you know a little bit of talk. The half track pulls up, they call for a nurse, she rushes to it. It this is something that I don't believe we've seen a lot of. And this is the idea of obligation and the idea of service. And without sounding, you know, a little bit too propagandized by Band of Brothers, I would say this. Uh, I remember what it was like to look at the way that the era of the 1970s and the 1980s looked at the, the subject of war, and particularly as that related to filmmaking. And that era was typically following a very standard new American discourse on war, which is postmodern in nature, which is disenchanted and cynical in nature. Vietnam did that. Vietnam did that to us. The Cold War did that to us. And I understand that it became art to, rather than be patriotic and rather than emphasize ideas of duty, optimism, courage, and sacrifice, rather than emphasizing those ideals, it became fashionable to emphasize disenchantment and cynicism. And that is really the struggle that we continue to fight to this day in American society, the struggle of what are we? We still don't know. Do we want to be modern and recognize patriotism and nationalism, or do we want to be postmodern and say, uh, postmodern and post-structuralist and say things like, oh, nation states only bring oppression and only bring doom and gloom and death, and they only create plutocratic oligarchies, and that Americans have only been lured into thinking this, this false mythology of an American dream and individuality and liberty. What we can't decide which one we are. And I think that we can still accommodate both ideas in our overall political and cultural outlook. But to push back into the main point, it's that also the movies that were presented and served up to us during the 70s and 80s didn't look like this. They, they tended to do something that I found was, uh, I think it was, I think it was a negotiation with the two warring sides, our two divorcing parents of of the old ideas of nationalism and the postmodern ideas of cynicism. And they negotiated a center ground, which I think you can see represented in movies like Platoon quite nicely. And that is that they negotiate this idea of butterflies in the hurricane, that we're just people and we're caught into these bigger events and, you know, Curses to the big man and to the fat cats and the plutocrats that put us here and the circumstances and we're going to stand for each other where they they're not finding a deep connection to ideas of nationalism. So they're not like blindly patriotic. They're very nihilistic in their outlook. And I think at least one thing that I absolutely adore about Banner Brothers is that 
it brings me into a conversation about those ideas because I think you see both ideas well represented in Band of Brothers. There's patriotism flag waving in there. There are uh, there there is a, there's an, a sense of people standing for something and people representing ideas and I I should say ideals. And then there's also a little bit of disenchantment, and I think we see that pretty regularly. We see that reflected by, for example, the attitudes toward senior leadership and Norman Dyke, and even there's a couple of shots taken at Robert Strayer in the series. We're asked to entertain ideas of postmodern skepticism from time to time in the series, but in this one little vignette of Eugene and Renee sitting there, Half-Track pulls up, what is it that's driving her forward? It's this sense of service and obligation and helping. It's not people, it's a different idea than that which is compelling Eugene. I don't want to say that entirely because when this anonymous soldier is in there bleeding to death, Eugene immediately responds. But a large part of Eugene's character throughout all of this is that he's providing immediate medical intervention for people that he knows, people that he lives with, people he spends every moment with. And Renee, on the other hand, is providing medical intervention for people she's never even going to know their names and she'll never see them again. And I find it to be a fascinating moment when she rushes off to the half track because what's pulling her into that? It's not these ideas of, I know this person. It's the, it's ideas of, of service and duty. And I think part of the reason that we're still talking about this miniseries 20 years later is because we're not often presented with these ideas and with the relationship of these two, which I think is so beautifully depicted, we're brought into that conversation. And this is one of the things that makes me value Band of Brothers. Certainly not depicted in a, in a way that as well as it is in, in this series or in, in this episode in particular, for sure. Yeah. They could have been distracted into negative things. The lesser filmmaker would have made their relationship more gratuitous. I'm not saying gratuitous like sexually, but it would have made it more over the top, more Broadway, more, you know, swelling music. And instead, these filmmakers presented that relationship in this very subtle way, you know, in an, in an unspoken way. And I respond to that in a very favorable way, obviously. And I think, I wonder why, because that's one thing I'd love to ask McKenna, because I wonder if he made it subtle deliberately because he knew that he was borrowing two stories that weren't really related together, weren't really related, and he was kind of forcing them together. Maybe it was that, or maybe he just, from the start, just had a respect for that and his prep work and his research and reading as he began working on the series. Maybe he read her story and admired that story because, I mean, I'll let the cat out of the bag. The Renee Lemaire story has a tragic ending. And that is that she is ultimately killed during a German heavy artillery bombardment that occurs on Christmas Eve. And she was, uh, at the time, working within the aid station for the 20th Armored Infantry Battalion of the 10th Armored Division in downtown Bastogne in a building that is now a Chinese restaurant and a particularly bad Chinese restaurant, I should mention. In the center of the city, that aid station was bombarded by the enemy. And over 30 people were killed, soldiers, and then, of course, also Renee Lemaire, which is something that is not directly thrust in our face in the series, but it's something that in a very subtle and, um, how would I put it, a very, um, it's a very subtle and indirect way it's presented, where you see Eugene has gone into the city, 
It's after this bombardment. It's after German airplanes fly overhead. And he runs to the scene of the church where, where he had encountered her and it's all damaged and collapsed in. And, you know, he finds, what is it that he finds? I think it's, is it part of her apron or part? Part of her, either apron or like bonnet or something. I, yeah. It's something that we had seen her wearing before. Right. And then, and then, then also just that's a big theme going here where they, they present something and then they pay it off. When that's presented, he finds that it's this subtle and indirect way of saying she's dead. She died. And he reflects on that. He takes it with him. Then meanwhile, he goes back up to the front line and somebody's bleeding and he pulls that out. And it's this moment of reflection. All of it's so, so beautifully done. But Renee Lemaire was not in an aid station associated with the 101st Airborne Division. She was, she was in an aid station associated with the 10th Armored Division. And so she therefore was not really in a position to be dealing with 101st Airborne Division paratroopers. I'm sure she did. Because there were 101st Airborne Division paratroopers all over Bastogne, and Bastogne is not that big. But we have to recognize, we have to admit that we're looking at an interaction that probably did not happen. I'm not here to say that it's lacking or that it's bad because of that, but it is something that probably didn't happen. At the end of episode six, there is some text on the screen that explains that on December 26, 1944, General Patton's Third Army broke through the German lines, and that allowed wounded to be evacuated and badly needed resupplies. Then there's some text that explains the story of the Battle of the Bulge, as it is told today, is one of Patton coming to the rescue of the 101st Airborne, even though no member of the 101st has ever agreed that the division ever needed to be rescued. Is that true? No, in a word. <laughs> I understand it. I get it. It's it's a level of, of unit bravado that I find very admirable. And I would never dream of denying the 101st Airborne Division that legacy. And I would never confront anybody in the 101st about this. But at the same time, there's some realities that we have to discuss. And those realities are limited number of people. The enemy has overwhelming numerical superiority, and they were running short on supplies in every category imaginable. And what this means now is that they were in a race against time, and that race against time, which was declining quantities of ammunition, declining quantities of medical supplies, and the declining quantities of medical supplies, that's a theme in this episode that's very well presented. And we're dealing with the challenges as simple as Eugene is trying to find a good pair of scissors. Took him a long time to find those scissors. <laughs> he eventually gets the scissors, but it's a long time to get that payoff. And the reality was that if the battle had taken a turn in one direction or the other, if as elements of 37th Tank, tank Battalion from Patton's 4th Armored Division, if, if that battalion had been more energetically opposed by the Germans as it attempted to reach Bastogne, the the perimeter around Bastogne would have been facing some harsh realities. And I would put it in perspective by mentioning one thing that I find tends to sit outside of the traditionalized narrative of the Bastogne battle. And that is that we had a large, not want to say large, but we had a respectable quantity of artillery inside the Bastogne perimeter during the course of the battle or during the course of the siege. And the artillery that was there brought ammunition with it when it came up. The artillery was delivering fire missions on almost a daily basis. And until about 4.30 p.m. on December 26th, 
the supply of ammunition for those artillery pieces was finite, and it was dwindling with each passing day. With it, once we eventually see this moment where um, a tank from C Company 37 Tank Battalion called Cobra King drives into the perimeter at Bast, uh, it drives, it approaches the southern perimeter of Bastogne. And when it reaches the perimeter, it's the moment that we recognize as marking the end of the siege. We have relieved Bastogne, but we only relieved it with a very narrow corridor. So even though we like to point to that moment as being the moment where it's over, Patton's Third Army reached us. It's not over yet because a process then had to begin and began on December 27th of widening the corridor because the corridor was just this narrow, narrow corridor was basically one road wide leading up from a town called Assinois to the south, leading into the southern approaches of Bastogne. The process of widening the corridor would involve more fighting. It would cost more lives. And that process would go on for the next few days, those days that would pass all the way up until basically the new year. So there's no foregone conclusion at any moment in any of this. There's never a moment where you can say, ah, no, we had them then, because any well-organized and well-directed German counterattack against that corridor could have severed it and Bastogne would have been encircled again. That didn't happen. As much as I respect the combat prowess and the expertise of the men of the 101st Airborne Division and the men of the other units in the, in the Bastogne perimeter and the 9th Armored Division and the 10th Armored Division and all these other supporting units, they were in a race against time that they could never win. They could never win it. If it went more than 10 days, they were done and they would have to surrender. And so, yes, it took somebody establishing an overland corridor to reach the city. Of course, now we know that before that overland corridor was established, it was possible to, through an air link, provide some provisioning of the city of Bastogne. And that was all great and all because you could get ammo and you could get med supplies and you could get other important things. In fact, the, a glider flew in an entire surgical team into the city, which is a, a harrowing and very admirable thing that happened. But at the same time, you couldn't evacuate casualties. And you couldn't do that. And that's a point that's brought out nicely in episode six, where, you know, when, when Eugene makes his first trip to this aid station, this sort of slightly fictitious aid station in the church, that also includes R- Rene Lemaire, who was with an aid station for another division. When he comes in and he sees them, basically the pews are lined with wounded men that need to be evacuated. He says, why haven't these men been evacuated yet? Which is when he receives the news that that's because we're surrounded. We can't evacuate anybody. That was eventually going to produce circumstances where the man exerting command, Tony McAuliffe, who was the divisional artillery officer for the 101st, where General McAuliffe was going to have to make a decision to surrender. And of course, we know that the, the Germans were demanding that surrender as of December 22nd, which is when the famous ultimatum comes in through the lines of F Company 327th Clyder Infantry Regiment. There have been a German officers brought to General McAuliffe's headquarters at the barracks in Bastogne. And when that ultimatum is presented to General McAuliffe, he, of course, responds with nuts as his response in a famous moment that we all talk about. And that is also depicted in the series. That was all well and good on December 22nd. But on December 22nd, Tony McAuliffe didn't know how this battle was going to end. None of them knew what's the end game here. All they knew was that they had to hold out. And this idea of holding out and staying where you were and doing your duty, it descended from Tony McAuliffe all the way down to the enlisted ranks of the E Company 506, all the way down to Rene Lemaire, 
Did they have contact? Did they know that Patton was trying to work his way through or were they just waiting and hoping that somebody would be coming? They had contact. They were able to communicate. They were able to communicate using radio because they were cut off. Uh, But radio communication during the Second World War was something that was very limited. Nevertheless, there was a radio link that was established by which the perimeter was capable of communicating to the outside. Although they could communicate, they still were suffering under the adverse circumstances of trying to deal with the weather, trying to get through intense enemy opposition. And it was all as a part of the overall background of the largest ground battle that American forces will fight during the Second World War. It's a a point that I find, because I've been leading tours in the area of the Battle of the Bulge for 20, almost 20 years now. And one thing that I find in basically educating people about the Battle of the Bulge is that not everyone's a history major. Not everyone's going to take these facts and details and commit them to memory. And then Band of Brothers comes along and it provides something that's very engaging and very compelling. And people got very enthusiastic about it to the point that they focused on the story of E-Company. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's a broader story out there. And that broader story, I think, makes the E-Company story all the more compelling because that broader story is that all along this line, we are fighting this intense battle against an enemy who we had heretofore assumed was getting close to the end of his rope. And instead, what happens on December 16th, 1944, the Germans throw 250,000 men at us in a counterattack that, at least on the highest levels of command, was not fully anticipated. So it's, I think, important to, it's great to be enthusiastic about E-Company and to get interested in the Bastogne story. And Bastogne is one small chapter out of about 100 other chapters that were unfolding just in the Battle of the Bulge at, the, at about the same time. And it's a, it's a strange reality emerges in attempting to become someone that can educate people about the Battle of the Bulge. And a problem that I experienced with it when I took it on is that it's effectively a lifetime. You have to, you have, to have more than a decade of your life to commit to meaningfully important, dedicated study of the Battle of the Bulge as a subject before you really get to a point where you begin to get it, to where you grasp the bigness. I remember that when I was traveling there, I remember the, at least the first five years was spent being lost. I spent that first five years just going, wait, wait a minute, where am I? Where's this? Where? And then I'd read something like, where's losery? Wait, where's Hemerul and losery? And where are they in relation to Bastogne? And eventually, there's basically only one solution to that, and is that it's just committed all to memory. And that takes time. It takes a lot of time. In order to get to the point where you appreciate the breadth of the battle, you're going to end up spending the better part of your adult life. Not everyone's going to do that. But everybody, I think, still is, not everybody, but a large number of people are still very interested in the story. And with that interest, I find Band of Brothers provides you sort of the perfect table setting. It's the perfect presentation. Here's a manageable chapter of this broader story, and it's good. we're going to depict it for you in a compelling way with beautiful people who act great. And you're going to love it. And we all still love it. It sounds like they made the right choice, though. I mean, I'm, granted, the, the story of Easy Company goes beyond just the Battle of the Bulge, but to focus on a, a smaller portion of it, like if they tried to do too much, there's a lot of movies and TV shows that try to do too much. And as a result, it gets lost. And I think it's, you know, it sounds like 
by taking a, at least a smaller portion of it, you're able to tell that story a lot more effectively and, and draw people in a lot more so, so that they can you know take the time to learn more about the rest of the story. Exactly. I can bounce it off of what I sometimes am given to calling the worst movie ever made, which is the 1965 movie, The Battle of the Bulge, which is a movie that tried to do it all. And that movie has lots of problems. And that movie, I think, suffered from the attempt to do too much that you just identified. It sounds like you're going to have to come back on and talk about that one. (laughs) (laughs) That would be a fun one. That would be a fun one, I got to tell you. I mean, it's so funny that, I mean, I I think back to that, like a few minutes ago, I was talking about the 70s and really the 60s, 70s and 80s. It produced basically a genre of film. I think people will sometimes sort of coarsely just say there's, um, there's war movies. Well, I would, I, I would identify multiple sub-genres within the war movie genre because I find that there's, in the, from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, there's a postmodernist war movie, and the parameters really are like, sort of like, ah, the man, they're keeping us down. Uh, rich man's war, poor man's fight, we're lions being led by asses, we're the victims of these larger political forces, and it's all very disenchanted and very cynical. Prior to that, there was an era where everything was sort of like syrupy, over-the-top, flag-waving, corny patriotism. I'm not saying that patriotism is corny. I am saying that the way that it was depicted in films in the 1940s and 1950s, it has a quality now that we can't digest it. When I look back at like a movie I really like is the movie Defense of Wake Island, they came out during the war. I'll go back and I'll watch it or a movie like Guadalcanal Diary from during the war. I'll go back and look at them and I'm like, Ugh, I get it. Okay. Or one that's very close to me from here to eternity. It doesn't go down easy anymore. It's a different time. We're a different audience. And the audience that was consuming this product in the 40s and 50s, they were being served a totally different product. And it was patriotism in a way, it was a patriotism that doesn't look like the patriotism we have now today. We still have it. It's not gone. But at the same time, there's still something there. It's less over the top. And if you could attenuate ideas of cynicism and over the top patriotism, if you can attenuate those ideas and find a middle ground, I find that Band of Brothers often strikes that middle ground in a way that resonates with me for the historical time period that I'm consuming that product. If my grandfather came back, I wonder how he would look at it. I know a little bit about the way that the veterans of Easy Company reacted to the series, and it was not all favorable, just for the record. I think they were more than happy to be made slightly famous for a while in the latter years of their lives, but they were also quite critical about it. Can I give you some insider gossip real quick? This is Access Hollywood Band of Brothers. So I had worked at this museum in New Orleans at the time that Band of Brothers came out. And we had a premiere event where they showed that one-hour treatment of the 10-hour broader series. And we showed that. We had a large number of the, of the veterans of Easy Company were present for that premiere event. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit. We have a rendezvous with a sex scene coming. It's the only sex scene in the series. And you know the one I'm talking about. It's in, is that episode, is that episode eight? I think it is. Depicting a GI fraternizing, fraternizing with a German woman. And I remember that the veterans were deeply offended by that at this premiere event because that little cut of this man and this woman engaged in in sexual congress, that offended them and they were infuriated. 
Not all of them, but many of them were. And I remember thinking like, yeah, I guess that would be a little weird for me sitting there with my grandchildren. That might be a little awkward. I could see that. But at the same time, I think what it does is it illustrates what their idea of the series should have looked like. Because I think their idea would be one where sexuality is not a part of the conversation. In my years of conducting interviews with World War II veterans, those years are almost completely over now, mainly because there's no veterans left. There's still some out there, but there just aren't enough for it to be meaningful anymore. But in my years, I could see how they were not all that receptive to bringing things like direct sexuality into it, at least not like in the presence of their families or at least not to a full extent. That ideas of racism were not necessarily something that were situated in the way that it would be presented to a broad audience that might include their grandchildren. That they might, in a conversation with me, talk about sex and race a little bit, and they might talk about it with candor. But when it's there and it's in front of their children and they're a named character as a part of a miniseries that's based on a true story, they were not entirely comfortable with it. And I think what they might have wanted a little bit more of was sort of the 1940s and 1950s approach, that subgenre of the war movie, rather than the late 20th century subgenre of war movie, because they're two different animals. To just lump them into war movie is so unfair. And it's, I think, also unfair to take Band of Brothers and bounce it off of lesser movies. Um, I won't name any because I've had too many friends that have gotten up very upset with me for trashing their movies. But let's be honest, in the last 20 years since Band of Brothers, have there other, has anything else come out that can compare? I mean, there's a reason why we're talking about this one 20 years later. There is. And, and that's, that's got a big part to play in it. And it's just because nothing else has really come around. And it's, there have been a bunch of movies that have been, I, for the most part, lesser movies. There have been some pretty good ones. Like I'm a, a huge fan of Thin Red Line. I think of, I greatly admire that film. But it sort of flashed and it wasn't even all that popular. Anyway, I, I just mention it just because it's, I think, unfair to take Band of Brothers and compare it to something like, now I'm just, I'm going to name one. This one's largely safe. I won't make very many people angry at this. To lump Band of Brothers in with Wind Talkers, for example, it's not entirely fair. I don't think it's, it does service to Band of Brothers, because Band of Brothers is having a far more complicated conversation with ideas like nationalism and postmodernism and romance and nihilism and disenchantment, all of these beautiful ideas that I love to think about. They're all there. That's why this series, it's so much fun to turn back to the series periodically and have those conversations all over again. And also to watch it so well depicted, like Details that emerge in this episode that I just admire to such an extent. Like one thing that this episode does, well, I mean, it's the series in general, is there's a dedicated, there was a dedication to accuracy and portraying weapons, equipment, and uniforms in Band of Brothers that, that I, to this day, I just, I can't help but admire it. There are moments in that, particularly the patrol when Eugene is asked to stay back, the patrol goes out and Julian, PFC Julian gets killed. And that scene where you, there's a point where you see the machine gunner and he's moving with the Browning M1919 A6 light machine gun. And that is a level of detail that I appreciate because that is a weapon that is being used by airborne units for the first time 
during Operation Market Garden, and it's being used, and it's used extensively by the 101st Airborne Division during the Battle of the Bulge. So that I can't help but admire the filmmakers who they make a commitment early on to depicting those details correctly. And there was a commitment with Band of Brothers that there hasn't been in other projects. I think it spoiled us because we've looked at other movies as other movies have come out. We've kind of, I at least I know I have had a higher expectation that they would live up to that. And Band of Brothers set a very high bar with that authenticity. And it's still something that I admire about it. It wasn't perfect because I don't think it's possible to achieve perfection, but it was very, very close to perfect. You make a great point, like when you're talking about Eugene and Rene, if they had been historically accurate, we would not know about Rene. So in that way, I think end of the day, what we're, it's a TV show. It's not a documentary. It's, you know, it's, it is an entertainment medium, right? I mean, it's telling a, a real story, but it is an entertainment medium. And so it's not going to be a hundred percent accurate. And so I think. They made some of those choices specifically to be able to tell Renee's story and to be able to put a, a spotlight on her, on her and what she did. And if they were being 100% accurate, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't know her story. And, you know, there's another story there that I haven't mentioned yet, but I'll mention it briefly, is that there are depictions of a dark-skinned woman in the aid station with Renee LaMere. And that woman, although she's not named and she doesn't have dialogue, her, her name was Augusta Shiwi, and uh, she only passed away in August of 2015. But Augusta was Belgian Congolese, meaning that she was descended from Congolese parents during the colonial period when the Belgians had a colony in the Congo, obviously. And a, a large number of Congolese people came back and there's to, like, to this day in towns like Brussels and Liège and Antwerp, there are entire areas where Congolese people live. And it creates a multicultural, a dark-skinned reality in modern Belgian society. And that reality was there 76 years ago during the Battle of the Bulge. And Augusta Shiwi, she did, just along with Renée Lemaire, serve on a voluntary basis. She was lucky enough to survive and live to old age, something that Renée Lemaire never had a chance to. She lived to 30, and that's as far as she got. Augusta Shiwi stretched it all the way until 2015. And I met her twice, I think it was. And we know her story now because Bruce McKenna made these decisions. If I ever get a chance to meet him, strangely, I worked on a project with him, but I didn't get to meet him. But if I ever do get to meet him, I'd love to go, you know, when you wrote an Augusta Chiwi character into the screenplay or to the story for episode seven, did you think that you were going to be creating an, a star? I mean, and she became a star. She became somebody, I said episode seven, episode six. She became somebody that people got interested in and people read up on and studied. And now there have been books written about her and there was a documentary made about her. So all of the enthusiasm that is directed toward Renee LaMere, to an equal extent, it's directed toward Augusta Shiwi as, as well. And by God, that is a greater good on every level because that's a fascinating aspect of the human story of the Second World War. The experience of Afro-Belgians. When does anybody ever talk about that? Augusta Chiwi became later in her life someone who was recognized, decorated, and celebrated because of this series. And I think that's an absolutely incredible thing 
And I wonder sometimes if Bruce McKenna, I'm sure he may, I'm not imagining him being a pat yourself on the back type, but you know, I wonder if he ever sits back and does the math. And that math would include like, he made several people in several different nations care about two women who otherwise would never have been central in the story of combat during the Second World War. And we are so much the better for knowing who Rene Lemaire and Augusta Chiwi were. Well, if we head back to the show, we are now at episode number seven. It's called The Breaking Point. According to some voiceover from Lipton, Easy Company is called on to help push the Germans back through the bulge. So we go from Bastogne to the Ardennes Forest on January 2nd, 1945. Can you give us some more geographical context to clarify these two locations and some maybe some historical context around where the Allies were and where the German lines were at this point? Right. At the point where we begin Episode 7, Bastogne is no longer surrounded. There's a corridor that's connecting Bastogne to friendly units to the south. That doesn't mean that the fighting is over there. I have found overwhelmingly in trying to educate people about the Battle of the Bulge um, is that they believe that in the afternoon on December 26th, when Cobra King drives into the Bastogne perimeter, they imagine that it was all over and it was all done with. But the reality is, is that beyond that moment, beyond December 26th, fighting around Bastogne doesn't go away. It continues. And in fact, it starts getting worse in certain ways. And the way that Easy Company fits into it is that Easy Company is during this critical time period just after New Year's. If you imagine the perimeter around Bastogne being a clock, Easy Company is basically at, at the 12 o'clock position, just north of downtown. And Easy Company, as we begin episode seven, is occupying positions in a wooded area that's called the Bois-Jacques, very close to an old railroad line, just north of downtown, just off to the east side of the highway that runs between Bastogne and a towns to the north called Noville and Ufelis. Anyway, Easy Company, as this episode begins, is dealing with the harsh experience of living in foxholes and bitter cold. Because at this point, you're, you're, they're living in temperatures that by, by day sometimes climbed up above freezing, but by night were typically below freezing. And camping in weather like that is not fun. And when you add people shooting at you to it, it really means nobody's having a great time. And I feel like the episode seven, it really leans into calling emphasis to this, the misery of fighting in, in, at this stage of the Battle of the Bulge. And I think the episode does this very, very well. Down to the level of small details like Dick Winters attempting to shave first thing in the morning when it's when it's cold outside cracking the ice in his cracking <laughs> the ice in the ammo can I, that was winters i think using his bayonets to try to crack the ice that's winters yeah trying to shave with germans walking right into your perimeter just calling a very powerful illustration of the fact that the lines were beginning to get blurred in that area where you had a frontier where at the beginning of the battle when easy company first arrives at bastogne there's this retract retraction period where during the siege, the era of the siege until the 20, until December 26th, they're attempting to just hang on and then they push out a little bit and then they give up some ground. And then now it's, it's coming to the point of reckoning. And that reckoning is basically the theme of this episode. And this, the episode builds that suspense in a really cool way that I think that 
Um, it's from the outset, they're talking about being in position south of Foy and how they will eventually have to capture Foy. So that's the grand climax of this, of this, is, this episode is that battle. We'll get to that here shortly, I'm sure. But it all starts off with Easy Company occupying positions in a wooded area that's called the Blashock, literally meaning the Jack Woods. And Easy Company in those positions in the Blashock is dealing with the fact that as a result of units being rotated on and off the line, because that's a, a, an element of the Battle of the Bulge story that really should be brought out. The series didn't have enough time to deal with it, but a reality was that when you put men up on the line like that and they're enduring extremely difficult conditions and they're also suffering attrition, not just as a result of enemy action, but also as a result of weather, which is depicted quite nicely here because in the last episode, they teased something that's paid off in this episode and they teased up, teased up this idea that Joe Toy is suffering and he's suffering it and it's depicted nicely in the previous episode where he's got immersion foot, which was becoming a big problem. And that was a problem that affected the readiness of these units that were having to man this line because the enemy, even after Christmas, even after New Year's, the enemy's out there, the enemy's close. They can't come off the line. They can't relax. And that means that men are out there and men are suffering and we're losing calves. We're losing people. We're experiencing casualties as a result of immersion foot. That's also known as trench foot. And when you've got somebody who um, develops a case of immersion foot, that troop is not effective. The only way out is to pull that man off the line. Your choices are pull him off the line and get him and get the condition addressed, or he will no longer be a soldier. He'll lose toes. He'll eventually no longer be able to serve. And so they were beginning to deal with people that as a result of at this point from what, December 9th, from December 17th, 18th, all the way through New Year's, you've got troops that are out there in the bitter cold. And in many cases, as is brought out at the end of that would be episode five, they bring out the fact that when they rushed to Bastogne at the beginning of the Battle of the Bulge, they weren't particularly well-equipped for long-duration exposure to extreme cold weather. And that ultimately changes a little bit, but that doesn't help us get through Christmas and New Year's. And so that by New Year's, you've got people that are suffering from immersion foot. Easy Company is experiencing those casualties because Easy Company is living in foxhole positions that are by night below freezing, by day sometimes creeping up above freezing, but still really cold, sometimes not even getting above freezing during the day. And you've got guys that are just cold and wet constantly. And that wears people down. It wears people down fast. And, the, and these two episodes, six and seven, really depict that very nicely, especially seven. And Easy Company's position now is that they're in positions at the Boisjoc. The lines separating them from the enemy are beginning to blur at this stage because in order to prevent men from becoming combat casualties as a result of like attrition from weather, you rotate them off the line. And so sometimes men from Easy Company rotate off the line. And sometimes you pull an entire company off the line, replace it with another company. And this process of juggling units from being on the line to being in reserve, it sometimes leads to, it leads to mistakes that happen. And one of those mistakes that happens is eventually is that on the road leading from a little town that's called Bizzery to Foy, which is where Easy Company was in position near Halt Station in the Boisjoc. On the east side of that road, as it turns out, there's a section of the Boisjoc Woods that the enemy ultimately gets into positions there. 
And what it does is it creates the awkwardness that we see depicted at the outset of this episode. And that awkwardness is that you've got Winters is shaving and a German is coming up to use their slit trenches, to go to the bathroom in their slit trenches. And Winter sees him through the mist and he says, um, "What? What? I can't remember what it says. Does he say, Honda Hawk, come and see here, schnell? And, and he takes this prisoner in. And this prisoner just literally walked into not just the company um, main line of resistance, but he walked, he came in behind all of that and walked right up on the battalion command post, the battalion headquarters, because Winters is no longer with Easy Company. Winters is now with the battalion headquarters. Winters is there shaving well back from the main line of resistance, and a German soldier walks in to use their slit trenches. And this is an important point because it precipitates this move that takes place that's depicted nicely in this episode, and it's this moment where they engage in what they call the the thousand-yard advance. Some sources call it the thousand-yard move. And that is where Easy Company advances from the area around Boisjoc to clear these woods to basically to the northeast of where they were in their positions. I mention that because it begins a choreography that is, it's not particularly well represented in the series. I'm not criticizing the series because I think that the series can't really tell that story well, this nuts and bolts movement of sometimes just E-Company, sometimes the battalion, sometimes just parts of E-Company, sometimes parts of the battalion as these units are being moved around and shuffled to cover all of this line with people who are getting to the end of their rope in terms of what they've been called on to do. And as they're doing this, they engage in this thousand yard move they clear the areas. They eventually then come back to the Bois-Jacques. But, and I think this is an, an extremely important point to emphasize, Easy Company is then moved into something that is described in both the book and the miniseries as the woods overlooking Foy. And I have found that over the years, people have assumed that what that meant was the wooded area that we know as the Bois-Jacques. And Basically, any tourist visit to Bastogne today involves people visiting the Boisjoc, this little section of woods where there are still existing foxholes, some of which are even original from World War II. Not all of them, but some of them. And it's still possible to find Winter's foxhole where this incident happened. And reenactors over time have come in and greatly improved some of the foxholes because it's now sort of like live action role playing that reenactors will go and camp in the Boisjoc during the first week of January, sort of just as a means of having an experiential moment with Band of Brothers and Battle of the Bulge history. But still, there are foxholes there, and people tend to go there. What is often sort of not recognized, and it's because the series doesn't really go out of its way to point it out. The series does so in a very oblique way, and that is that they're in the Bois They engage in this thousand-yard advance on January 2nd, where... You have a couple of tragedies where Julian gets killed. And then this this notable moment where Hubler negligently shoots himself in the leg and he eventually dies as a result of the wound. Then Easy Company recovers from the thousand-yard move. They return to Boisjoc, but then they continue moving to the west and to the northwest from the Boisjoc to a wooded area that we tend to now just call the Bois de Fazon. And the Bois de Fazon is between the N13 highway, which is the highway leading to Minoville, and then the new, the modern interstate in the area. Those are the woods overlooking Foy. 
that are indicated by the voiceover, which is Carwood Lipton's inner monologue throughout this episode. And, and, and something I, I'd like to point out real quick is that this episode, episode seven, differs from the episodes that have come before it and the episodes that come after it insofar as it has an enormous amount of voiceover monologue. You have a little bit of it in previous episodes, but mainly what is carrying this episode forward is you come back to narration from Carwood Lipton over and over and over again. And that that voiceover narration is providing very important exposition about what's going on. And I mention it just because Graham Yost wrote this episode and I feel for him because how in the world would you write this episode where Easy Company goes on the starts in the Boisjac, thousand yard move, then comes back to the Boisjac, then goes back, then goes to the Bois de Fazon, and then goes into reserve because the Easy Company goes into reserve starting on January 5th. They're on reserve through January 9th. And then they, when they come off of reserve, they go back up through the Boisjac. Some men stay in the Boisjac and then other men go to the Bois de Fazon where they're separated by a couple of miles. It's quite complicated. And that complication, I can feel for Graham Yost because he was like, how do I tackle this? How do I carve this out and make this make sense? I don't want to go into all of this painful narration of, well, a small detachment of Easy Company remained behind in the Bois Jacques. They were temporarily assigned to D Company. And while- <laughs> Have to explain all that. <laughs> the way he solved it, I think, is masterful because, you know, there's this, there's this moment that I think is actually charming because- this episode exists mainly to develop three characters. And first and foremost, it's Carwood Lipton, played by Donnie Wahlberg. Secondly, at the outset, we're developing the Donald Hubler character until we say goodbye to him on January 3rd. Then we're developing, of course, the Norman Dyke episode. I don't, the Norman Dyke character, I don't even want to say his name just yet. But then more importantly, we're developing the Ronald Spears character. And I think that we developed him a little bit in episode two, and now he's really getting a great deal of development in the form of this scene that I think is actually kind of charming. And it provides this really cool moment of dramatic foreshadowing where we're reminded that Spears is an admirable character while we're simultaneously getting Greek chorus stuff about Dyke being not admirable. But the the way that it's done is in this one little this moment where you've got Christensen, Perconti, and one other soldier, I can't remember who it is, and they're in their foxhole, and they're talking, they're gossiping about Spears killing the prisoners in Normandy, and then Spears walks up on them. You know that? It's a great moment. Want a cigarette? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Want a cigarette? Exactly, exactly. And then everybody's just sort of locked, rigid, and I mean, it would be wrong for me not to mention the fact that Christensen is Michael Fassbender at an early moment in his career. And it's been fascinating to watch where he has gone since Band of Brothers. And then it's well played by James Matteo as Frank Picanti. At any rate, we're getting the development of characters through all of this. And that development is coming mainly through voiceover narration by Carwood Lipton. And as the years have gone by, I've tried to think of ways like, well, if I had wrote that episode, how would I have written it? I have not come up with a better way of approaching this or tackling this subject than the way the Graham Yost did it. And that is that you're kind of left with, you have to pull everybody right back into the moment. You have to explain. There's a lot of exposition. There's a lot of, you have to explain a lot of what's going on. 
because otherwise it's the sense behind it is going to be a lot less apparent. And and he did so with all this voiceover monologue, which under some circumstances can be like it overdoes it. But I think in this, I think it's it's just what we needed. It's an interesting little change of gears for the series, isn't it? Because we weren't really being moved forward bit by bit. And then also it's there are moments where you've got the voiceover narration will give you a line and then you have characters on screen providing dialogue that directly relates to what you're hearing in voiceover narration. And I think it's just really nice storytelling and I really like it a lot. And then I suppose I ought to go ahead and just rip the Band-Aid off and really get down to it because I think that this episode, which I love, it does some very bad things. This episode does something that would be wrong not for us to to tackle in this discussion, and that is that it basically abuses the historical legacy of a real person. But we're not quite there yet because I haven't complained yet about the Luger. Can I do that real quick? Yes, yes. I was going to ask you about the Luger because it's it is set up. Not I think it's set up actually a few episodes earlier. We kind of get the idea that they're looking for a German. German Luger and then finally find it. I think it's actually Malarkey that uh, is is looking for it um, at one point. And then, you know, Hubler gets it in this one. And, and as you mentioned just a moment ago, yes, it goes off. I think it, uh, I think the, the shot in the show, I think it, it mentions that it clips his femoral artery or something like that. And so he ends up bleeding out. Did that actually happen? It did indeed. It's, it's a sad tragedy. And I should just mention that my study of the history of the Second World War has mainly focused on the American experience in the Second World War. And um, as you know, I'm very interested in combat forces, where they experience combat. And I'm, through that, very interested in weapons and equipment. And a very sad and dark reality that I've had to recognize is that during this war, we sent a lot of people overseas in uniform, and a very large number of them died as a result of negligence of firearms. I can't, you know, I can't even begin to tell you just the relentless bombardment of cases of people who are unintentionally, sh- they unintentionally shoot themselves, they unintentionally shoot another soldier. This is a reality of war. And when you have uh, multiple nations undergoing full national mobilization and sending millions of people in uniform into combat, you're going to have problems with this. And there was sort of an epidemic of, of accidents often fatal as a result of firearms negligence. And in this case, you've got a particularly sad example of that and that you had the setup and the payoff. And I actually think, I might be wrong, but I know for a fact that this is being, that this Luger issue is set up in episode two. I think, I have a recollection that it might have even been set up in episode one. I'm going to go back and look tonight when we get finished, but super duper early and here we are episode seven and it gets paid off and it's paid off in tragedy because yes Hubler does negligently shoot himself he does not shoot himself with the german po8 luger pistol he ends up shooting himself with a belgian pistol that was made by a company called fabrique nationale that's often just referred to as fn it's the fn model 1900 uh, pistol which was the first slide-operated semi-automatic pistol that was designed by John Browning. And it was in 32 caliber. And I believe there's even a piece of dialogue where they say something about it. It, may have, it might not be in the, the series. It might be in writing additional writing about the series. But I know that it has come out where they say the weapon didn't have a safety. And that's not true because the, uh, if there's one thing that characterizes John Browning and his pistol designs is that he was constantly cautious 
about designing firearms that have safeties, and in some cases, multiple safeties. For example, he'll ultimately design a pistol called the Model 1910, and that is a pistol that had three safeties. It had a magazine safety, so if you removed the magazine, it wouldn't fire. It had a grip safety that could only be disengaged when you gripped the pistol, and then it had a manual safety. Browning didn't get to that right off the bat. Browning began realizing that having multiple safeties on a firearm was the best bet. He would ultimately then design this excellent method later on, but we're not here to talk about pistol designs. The reality is that Browning's Model 1932 caliber pistol had a manual safety on it, and what probably happened is that Hubler not being familiar with that pistol, and also Hubler being, I think the extent of his familiarity with with handguns would have been with the government issue M1911A145 caliber pistol. And so he gets this Belgian-made FN32 caliber pistol, which is taken off of this officer that he, this German officer that he shoots off of a horse, or off a horseback. And he's quite proud of it, and he's talking it up over and over again, and he eventually ends up shooting himself in the thigh, and he perforates his femoral artery. And I'm, I'm sure you're aware of it, but if you if you get hit in the femoral artery, it, things happen so quickly that people rarely, they rarely survive it. it I mean, it happens a, a minute. You can bleed out in a minute by being hit there. And that's what sets the stage for this tragedy. One thing I would love to ask the filmmakers is why you chose the Luger. And I think they probably chose it because then there's less exposition where you you just sat through my exposition about here's the the Browning Model 1900 or the FN Model 1900 pistol designed by John Browning blah 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 safety manual safety you know they don't need all that nonsense all of that is just blah 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 that it doesn't have a place in this storytelling and rather than trying to carve out very specific realities about what the pistol was in real life they just chose to go with Luger. And Luger is something, it's one word, it's very easily recognizable. It's probably the most famous of all the German pistols. And just, they made a decision. Filmmakers made a, made a decision in favor of storytelling. And I really just can't criticize them for that. I can respect that decision. Because what what's the story here? What is the story we're telling? We're telling the story of the breaking point. That's where we are. And part of that story is that People are miserable. People are suffering. Easy Company is going through this period where it's experiencing its greatest level of attrition. And men are dropping like flies from contact with the enemy, from the natural environment, and then also from the capriciousness of the experience of modern war, where you have a great guy that's with you from the start, and he pops himself in the leg with this pistol he wasn't familiar with, and he's gone like that. That's the story that they're telling. It's not meant to be a lecture about German handguns in World War II. At that point, it doesn't really matter what the weapon is. They're telling the story that this tragedy happened. Exactly. And that I find that's an extremely compelling set piece in the across this broader episode where we see a lot of people, either they're gone for good or we see them irrevocably changed. And I say I use irrevocably changed because we have to confront something that's about to happen in the overall e-company experience in World War II, and that is the night of the bombardment before midnight, January 9th, 1945, and pre-dawn, January 10th, 1945. The experience of that time period, January 9th and 10th, when Easy Company is subjected to enemy artillery bombardment, we see people killed, we see people wounded, we see people maimed, 
And then we see one person in the form of Lieutenant Buck Compton, who is irrevocably changed by that experience. He's not wounded. He's not killed, but he's never the same again. And that's the thrust of this episode. This episode is, is trying to bring us into this world of appreciation. And it's doing so in a way that I don't know that there aren't many movies that can make you appreciate this dark reality of combat quite so effectively as episode seven of Band of Brothers does. And the Luger story is such an important part of that bigger story that will include then shelling and it will include people losing limbs as a result of the shelling and people being literally blown into smithereens, people who are, there's nothing left, almost nothing left of them. To make that point sink in, you have to include the Hubler story. And I can see why they, why Gramios looked at this and went, okay, I gotta, I gotta streamline this. I'm going to have to change a little bit of the historical narrative, but I've got to streamline this. And I'm thankful for that because that was something that pulled at people's, that tugged at their heartstrings. And I find myself going to places like the Bois Jacques, but I find myself answering questions from people. Questions like, you know, like, why is, why did the Germans not have a safety on the Luger? And then I go, well, what actually happened was, the Luger has a safety. And then I go, blah, 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 blah. And I, and I play that out. And I should thank Graham Yost for giving me a career. <laughs> because in a way, that inquisitiveness, the fan following that the series developed has led so many people um, into ultimately making a decision to engage in historic travel to these locations. And this is a, that's something that, at least until 2020, I was involved with. And these are the conversations that we would have at places like the Bois Jacques, where they would ask me, you know, why was the Luger so dangerous? And, and I, I'm misrepresenting how I feel about it. I actually welcome the opportunity to discuss things like that. And this series has given me opportunities now for 20 years to discuss things like what happened to Hubler. And so don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not disrespectful to the series. I'm very appreciative of it. Well, you alluded to something that I wanted to ask you to dig into a little bit more, and that is the shelling. We we see Joe Toy and Bill Garnier just get severely wounded. And as you mentioned, Buck Compton, he was right there. He sees his two friends lying on the ground. And he He's shaken up real bad. He's not physically injured himself, but you, know, you can tell he's just broken by that. And then soon after that, we see Malarkey starts to hit his breaking point. Lipton manages to get Malarkey off the line a little bit, tell him to go say goodbye to Buck. And then Lipton's voiceover comes into play here again. He said, you know, even going back 50 yards for an hour or two can make a big difference in the soldier's state of mind. And since the title of this episode is The Breaking Point, we're starting to see the breaking point here. What was the the mental state like for the men of Easy Company at this point in the war? We're starting to see a large number of the men exhibit symptoms of combat exhaustion. I believe when we when we talked last time, a subject that came up was that the way that I have had combat veterans express it to me, and I was raised by a combat veteran, just for the, for the record, I've not been in combat myself, but my father was and was in kind of a lot of it. The way that I've had multiple combat ex- veterans express it to me is that you think of it as like a bottle and the bottle can be half empty or half full. And that bottle is how much hardship you can endure. And some people have a bigger bottle than others. 
and that the process of basic training and the um, the hardships that you endure during basic training are designed to figure out who has a bigger bottle than other people. And that then you send the people with the biggest possible bottle off to endure the realities of combat. And even then, you get people that get out into the into it and they can handle it easy, but only for a certain amount of time. There are some people that can handle all of it. And in some cases in my life, I've met people like that, where no matter what hardship was presented to them, they just managed it. And some people just wear out faster than others. When you add to that the wild card of seeing people that have become a part of your immediate friend cohort and your immediate tribe, because there has been some fascinating recent writing about how for men and women in combat, that it becomes sort of a tribal experience, that they develop a tribal kinship with the people that they're with and experiencing combat with. And that when you see those people one after the other getting snuffed out, it traumatizes you. I believe what it does is it, it makes, makes you, it forces you to confront the possibilities of your own mortality and that you then tie to that the emotional connections that you have with other people that are taken away. And they're taken away as a result of the fighting. They're taken away over stupid things like a negligent discharge of a captured pistol. They're taken away because of minor wounds. They're taken, taken away because they just can't take another minute of it. And they psychologically reach their breaking point. And this whole episode meditates on that, which is why I think this episode is so incredibly important to the overall story being told in Band of Brothers. And this, this episode is so good in doing that. It does it so very, very well. And it does it excruciatingly well with the way that it shows Buck Compton come up and begin to crumble when he sees Toy and Garnier maimed for life. It shows Malarkey beginning to crack because people that were so close to him we're just, they're now gone. And it shows how, how important the main character of this episode is to keeping it all together. And the, the central character here is, of course, Carwood Lipton. This is his episode. I just cherish this moment of interaction between Lipton and Malarkey, where Malarkey is just, he's not doing well. I think, in fact, the voiceover narration that we get about this is that it's relating to Muck and Pinkala, which we should talk about. But just to, you know, to preview that, in talking about Muck and Pinkala, Carwood Lipton's voiceover ends up saying, Muck and Pinkala were good men. Their death hit Malarkey the hardest. Malarkey's best friends in the company had been Compton, Muck, and Pinkala. In less than a week, he'd seen two of them die. And the actor playing Malarkey does this, I think, a beautiful job. A character who, let's just face it, that, you know, up to this point in the series, a character that's been sort of jovial and a little bit of a, not, I don't want to say clownish, but a character that has at times brought levity to the overall story. This character turns and becomes dark as, um, as he's tortured by these people that he was close to being killed and maimed. And this is the essence of the episode. It's the essence of the breaking point, because that's what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about how you can take men at their peak of youth and physical fitness. You can take men that are very, very well trained for the experience of combat. You can take men who are veterans of combat and you can put them in a position where you expose them to such hardships that even they are driven to their breaking point. I think that there was some voiceover from Lipton that 
said it really, really well. And it goes right in line with what you're saying, where it was talking about Compton and saying that, you know, but Compton took everything that the Germans had to throw at him. But the moment that he saw his friends lying on the ground, he just broke and nobody felt the lesser of him for it. I, I, I can't, I can't imagine what that would be like, but I think the show does a really good job of, of telling that this band of brothers, right? So they're, they're together, but as soon as they start to see their friends just in a moment like that, right in front of them. And you're, you're talking about uh, Monk and Pancala. Those were the, they, those were the guys that were in the foxhole, right? And direct hit. Correct. Yeah. Where, um, where Lutz is crawling toward them. Yeah, let's just crawl. They're like, oh, come, come here, come here. And then, yeah, just direct it. A moment, they're gone. Yep. So I'm assuming that actually happened. It did. It did indeed. And um, to give you a, a detail that I believe might be edifying for you is that what the series doesn't tell you is that in the aftermath of all this fighting, there were units that um, I like to talk about a great deal because I so admire them. And they're units within the U.S. Army that were quartermaster graves registration companies that come in in the aftermath of the battle. They go into areas where there were they were dead. They recover the they recover the dead. They process them and they take them for burial. Well, the quartermaster graves registration unit that eventually comes to the Fazon Woods and comes to the area around um, Foy and Reconia, they collect up the dead. They temporarily bury them, and there is a there's still a German cemetery in Reconia, right next to Foy. But there used to be an American cemetery there where about 2,700 Americans were buried. They remained there from 44 to 48 until they, and then they were ultimately taken and concentrated at an American cemetery just outside of Luxembourg City. And Muck and Pakala, there were actually remains of them that were recovered. However, the, when the family received telegrams, the telegrams that they received were explaining to them that they were at first they were missing in combat. And then eventually what they received was a separate category, separate from the categories that we're more familiar with. And those categories are KIA, WIA, and POW, killed, wounded, and prisoner of war, or MIA, missing in action. In addition to those categories, KIA, WIA, MIA, and POW, in addition to those four categories, there's another category that's called FOD, finding of death. And the United States Army created this category for cases just like what happens to Skip Mock and Alex Pinkawa when they're killed in the Bois de Fazon on January 10th. And that is that you had a first-person eyewitness to what happened to them. And in this case, it was Lutz, who watched them die. And then there, on an immediate basis, were no remains left. A U.S. Army graves registration team goes to the Bois zone, goes to that foxhole. It finds human remains. And, and to a certain degree, those remains were identifiable. So at first, somebody says, I saw him die. Then they're missing. And so from January 10th, when they're killed, until eventually when a graves registration team gets there, which is months later, the family, the family has to know what happened to them. And there's this interval of time. And the government couldn't tell you one way or the other because the government didn't have proof of their death in the form of their bodies. And, but the government did have the personal testimony of an eyewitness. And so the government had this category, FOD. And they were both given that category until then subsequently a graves registration team recovered remains. 
it's my understanding that they recovered remains at the hole where Muck and Pinkala died. They recovered them all in basically one group. And that then after the war, they were separated enough that they could be compared against paperwork. And it was possible during this post-war time period to identify, okay, this part of the remains belonged to Skip Muck. This part belongs to Alex Pinkala. So that eventually they were reinterred in Luxembourg in identified graves. And they're both there to this day. When I visit that cemetery with guests on tour, we typically go by and visit both of them because that story's compelling. That story says something, I think, important about what was going on. And that is that not everything is neat and clean. And families might just get this telegram that's not really telling you one way or the other. Now, just for the record, nine, nine times out of 10, when they got notified of someone being MIA, that would eventually turn into either confirmation by the recovery of remains as KIA, or it might just be finding of death during the course of the war. And that's what happens with Muck and Pinkala, although in the aftermath of the war, eventually enough of their remains were identified for them to be buried. But that wasn't done during the wartime, so the family did, didn't get telegraphs announcing them as KIA. They got telegraphs announcing a finding of death in the matter. Wow. Yeah, harsh. I mean, it's incredibly important role to be able to identify that, but I could not imagine the horrors of war as it is, but to be a part of a unit that goes in and has to identify, I, I, I couldn't imagine. Yeah, not to put too much of a gruesome point on it, but I have worked sort of on a long-term basis on two stories about Normandy that relate to the subject of my first book, the 507th Parachute Infantry Regiment. And it was over recovery of remains of Americans at two villages, one called MFA, one called Glen. And at MFA, uh, there were Americans who were murdered by the Germans. And film footage exists of the exhumation of their dead bodies. So for 16 days in June 1944, these Americans were, they were temporarily buried at this in this churchyard of this little village. And then the Americans, as a part of a war crimes investigation, came back and recovered their graves. And they filmed the recovery because they, it was important to document what was happening for this war crimes investigation. And the footage, it's, if you want to see it, I'll send it to you. I can't look at it anymore. It is so horrible. It's what you're seeing are people that had their brains blown out. And then you're seeing their bodies after they were buried for 16 days. And the footage is a part of this recovery. It's showing the men of this graves registration team that goes back and recovers the bodies of these men who had been murdered. I can't imagine the nightmares that those people must have had in the years after the Second World War. I can't imagine. But it's, I, I still see, I mean, it's so, so important to be able to tell the families, like what, to give them that confirmation of what happened and you know, to be able to identify that it's. I've already kind of brought this up, but I want to use this now to explain a certain point. And that is, I've already brought up the idea of the subgenre of war movies from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. The era of, I'm just going to name it. I'm going to just call it postmodernist war movies, the, the disenchanted and cynical war movie. That's an era that could never explain what I have seen from the Graves registration teams during the Second World War. Because what I have seen is that in an analog time period, these Americans approached the most gruesome job of them all, 
with such care and purpose and conviction that here I am almost eight decades later, and I'm kind of examining the work that they did while camping in the field during a war. I'm examining the work that they did in an analog era, and I find so few mistakes that it's astonishing. And during a time period when it would have been easy to make a whole bunch of mistakes, I find that these people rarely made them. And then when you see photography of the men working, it's especially fascinating because like a, a reality of, of the American military in the Second World War is that it was the subject of segregation. African-Americans served in segregated units, and sometimes they served in these quartermaster graves registration units as grave diggers. And there are photographs that show an army chaplain standing over a grave because they would they would establish a temporary cemetery, then the bodies of the killed would be brought to them, and they would, one after the other, they process their paperwork because they didn't want to make any mistakes. They didn't want a family getting wrong information, and they did so with great care and precision. And then for every one of them, when they were placed in the ground, they had a religious right said, depending on whatever their religious belief system was. So in the Army in World War II, you could be Catholic, marked on the dog tags with a C. You could be Jewish, marked on the dog tags with an H for Hebrew. You could be P, Protestant. There are Americans of Hawaiian ancestry who serve that are Buddhists and Shintoists during the Second World War. And the Army Chaplain Corps had to provide for everyone, which I think is a pretty cool thing. And there are photographs that are taken in Normandy of army chaplains standing over a grave saying whatever last rite that person's spiritual convictions called on them to say. And then the grave diggers are standing off to the side, preparing to put earth on top of that casket. And they've all taken their headgear off and they're in silent prayer with the chaplain over it. And I find that to be extremely moving. That's something that doesn't really, I think, fit in the postmodernist genre. Because I'm supposed to be reminded over and over again that we're supposed to be cynical and disenchanted. And I look at moments like that where I see, I don't know that these differences that the postmodern period wants me to be infatuated with. I don't know that those differences existed the way that I think postmodernism sometimes wants them to exist. And I, what I see instead is this sort of silent contribution to the war effort of people who had to deal with the dead bodies. and. I mentioned the two villages that I deal with, MMA, where the murdered victims were, and this other village, Glen, where the quartermaster graves registration unit had to come in after the fact, and they found a grave site where the Germans had buried our war dead, and they had one area where they had individual graves for complete sets of remains, and then when the Germans collected up the, the dead, they collected up a bunch of body pieces where they were loosely non-associated. You might have a head. You don't know who it is. You might have an arm or a leg. And the Germans created a separate pit where they buried those two. And so the graves registration team then had to come in, exhume the complete sets of remains, and then the pit where the body parts were. And that's that's some dark nightmares right there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't do it. I, I don't think I could. Yeah. We see throughout – since the beginning of the show, we've seen – quite a few different leaders of Easy Company. And we've seen uh, Sobel to start off with, and there was Meehan, uh, Winters, Haliger for a little bit. And then there's Lieutenant Norman Dyke. He seemed to, in episode seven, he seemed to pretty much avoid 
Tran could do pretty much anything, including making decisions. Uh, he would be gone for hours at a time on a walk somewhere. As we start to see the the mental state of Easy Company's men start to fray, that's just exacerbated in the episode by the lack of leadership from Lieutenant Dyke. And then finally, when Easy Company has to assault the town of Foy in the heat of the battle, Dyke just seems to crack under pressure. We can see Winters watching from the tree line. He gets angry. He's, he, I was just watching it again. Like he actually starts to run out there. <laughs> um, and then, you know, he has to be called back. And he's, and he's called back. He's called back. You, you're the leader of the battalion. You can't run out there. Um, so instead, he sends Lieutenant Spears to relieve Dyke. And all the men just seem to be relieved that somebody competent in Spears is is now in command. How accurate was the show's depiction of Lieutenant Dyke? It was deeply inaccurate. And this is really my only criticism of Band of Brothers, because what they did in their treatment of Norman Dyke was, I think, unconscionable. Uh, I think it's slightly disgraceful because what the series did for the purposes of ser- storytelling, and Keep in mind, I love this series. I'm devoted to it. I greatly admire the series and all of the people that were associated with it, and I'm thankful for it. But there's no other word for me to use than unconscionable to describe what they did to this person. Because in all realities, it looks like, well, I should put it this way. In all realities, the recollections of Lieutenant Dyke and his career in the United States Army were not characterized by stupidity or indecisiveness or all of basically every way he's depicted. None of that seems to have been a part of his actual career in the United States Army. In fact, based on all accounts, his leadership appears to have been extremely sound. He doesn't even seem to have been terribly disliked. At least there's really not a significant amount of evidence to suggest that. Sure, there was a little bit of moaning and complaining from the E-Company men because they didn't like him, because he didn't strike... The, the daunting figure that, that Winters had or that, for example, Spears had or Compton. Compton was an extremely capable leader that everybody liked. But for reasons that I think are unfair to Dyke and his legacy, he is remembered as not being quite as much of a leader. And I believe that it's, it was circumstantial to an extent. Because imagine the circumstances. It's almost like the series can't make up its mind. Make up your mind. Are these people being driven to the breaking point? Or is Dyke a terrible leader? You have to make up your mind because you can't have both. The series wants us to, over and over again, meditate on the idea of these people are suffering. Everyone's at their breaking point. Their attrition is taking them away one at a time. And I believe that under those circumstances, it would be easily possible for someone to develop a little bit of bitterness and hostility toward a leader. And as particularly toward the leader that they're on a daily basis working with. And that would have been Lieutenant Dyke. I also feel like it's worth mentioning again. I know I mentioned it last time, but it's worth mentioning again that there were some tough boots to fill when you go from winters to the next person taking over. And it seriously could simply be these negative opinions they could have lingered when Dr. Ambrose began writing the book and when Ambrose was hearing from the veterans during the time when veterans were still alive. It could be that some of that hostility came from uh, less familiarity, where they were far more familiar with Winters. They were completely comfortable with Winters. They get a new guy, and then they're thrust into the worst period of suffering that they experienced during the war. 
I don't believe that it is inappropriate for me to project into that and go, you know, it's you're asking a lot of people to welcome and warmly greet an outsider. I further to this point like to observe from time to time that although I wasn't in the military, I've been around it a lot in my life and I've seen the way that people lead in the military. And I have seen over and over again that there are appropriate places for certain levels of leadership and that you have a first sergeant who's on a daily basis right there with the men and interacting directly with the men. You have that first sergeant there for a reason to serve that purpose. The first sergeant's there to deal with soldier stuff. And then you have officer leadership, and that officer leadership is dealing with a different level of responsibility. And the level of responsibility that that officer leadership is dealing with are things like what the company's supposed to do on a tactical level of, of keeping the unit supplied, communicating effectively with other units. And with that in mind, I don't believe that it's necessarily all that unreasonable to expect that your company commander will, on a regular basis, have to go back and communicate with the battalion headquarters or the regimental headquarters. That's not unusual. He might not necessarily be right there in the foxholes with the men at all times, because this is something that's being used to pick on Norman Dyke in this episode, isn't it? They're using this whole thing of Dyke's away making phone calls. And I have to admit, another thing that disappoints me about the series, particularly this episode, is that the way that the character is presented on camera is very clownish and Broadway and exaggerated. We're sort of clubbed over the head a little bit with Norman Dyke, aren't we? Where Norman Dyke is, like, there's the moment toward the end where there's some voiceover narration going on, Lipton's talking about it, and it's depicting some men there with Buck Compton, and Compton looks off, Dyke standing off to the side, and he's like, isn't that right, Lieutenant? And he goes, oh, yeah, that's right, you men, you men handle it. I gotta go call regiment. And it's depicted in almost this clownish way that, to me, it really pulls me out of the series violently because the series is so good. And it's a moment where it's a lot less good, I think. And it's completely unfair. You don't, you're not here to talk to me about my opinions of Band of Brothers, but that's an opinion. But I'll move on to the bigger point. I mentioned my opinion simply to, to say that as a result of the needs of being able to carry a story, they're making a villain out of Norman Dyke. And they're making him into this exaggerated, sickening villain where he's completely inept, he's completely incompetent. And then the big finish of this entire episode, which is the January 13th, 1945 attack on Foy, he is depicted as what? Coming apart at the seams, which is something that did not happen. It is so unfair. It is unconscionable for the writers of this series to have taken a person who actually lived, a person who has a family, and to misrepresent the realities of his experience in the war to such a degree, to engage in character assassination to the extent that they did. If I had unfettered access with David Frankel, who directed the episode, and Graham Yost, who wrote the episode, I'd say, why? Why did you guys, we got so deep into this series, hell, the end of the series is almost in view at this point. Why is it that you had to, to do this to, to him? I see a very a, a big contrast to that come to a head here in episode seven, where when Spears is the one that's taking over for Dyke, up until this point, the men have all these stories about Spears and how he's he's this this great 
leader. And then when he actually takes over, like one of the first things that we see him do in the series is Spears runs right through the German line to hook up with I Company on the other side of town, then runs right back. <laughs> and so we're seeing just this brave, heroic action from Spears happen right just moments after we see Dyke just crumbling under the pressure. And we're seeing these huge contrasts there. A sniveling, almost childish Dyke who's throwing down his handset for his SCR 300 radio in frustration. And he's taken off his helmet and he's, he's catatonic. And none of that, absolutely none of that happened. The reason that Spears takes over is because Dyke had been injured. Dyke was wounded. Dyke was shot in the shoulder. That's the reason that Spears takes over. And then I'm not here to take away from Spears. Uh, and Spears did sort of run through the middle of the battle. But he didn't run through it in sort of this gratuitous, over-the-top Hollywood Broadway thing. You see the German soldiers pointing at him like, wait, what is he doing? <laughs> like, yeah, like dopish German soldiers that go, wait a minute, this American just ran by. It's very compelling, isn't it? It's a kick-ass scene. Oh, it's a great scene, yeah. <laughs> and it sort of happened like that. But I just, I feel it's so unforgivable for them to have made Dyke into what he wasn't. Dyke was a white Dyke was wounded on the battlefield and honorably serving in battle when he was wounded at a time. And he was wounded in such a way that he could no longer continue to command that unit in action. And that's why Spears is called in. And the fact that the writers, I understand writing and I understand what they have to do, but the fact that they would do that to somebody who has a living legacy in the form of children and grandchildren, I think is very, it's to put it mildly, very disappointing. I don't think they needed that. I don't think that they had to reach and go with the nuclear option the way that they did. They could have, I think, with much more subtlety, certainly subtlety that was what was demonstrated elsewhere in the series. They could have, with greater levels of subtlety, made it out to where he's a little bit less of a commander, but blah. But you, the reason that it's here, the reason that we're looking at it is why? Because we want to make Spears look decisive. Because... And I'm here complaining about something that I absolutely love. I love the fact that we have a departure from the genre of the postmodernist war movie. We have characters who are depicted as being not just brave, not just honorable, but decisive men of action, something that we universally admire. And we've seen Winters developed like this. And now we've seen Spears developed like this. And as much as I love the fact that these attributes, that these characteristics, something that is that is kind of largely been absent from, if I could compare it to a movie like Platoon, where you really just don't see positive attributes well represented, and you get what I believe is a skewed picture of what U.S. Army units fighting in Vietnam look like. Here you have these positive attributes being presented, and I welcome that, and I admire that, and I just wish that they hadn't assassinated the character of Norman Dyke like they had to get that job done. And if I ever had a chance to talk to him about it, I wouldn't, I, I would be careful not to be offensive, but I'd be like, you know, did you guys think about children and grandchildren when you did this to this man? Did anybody at any point go, you know, you know, he got shot in the shoulder in the middle of the field of battle and that's why Spears took over. Did they ever pause and go, well, you know what, maybe we shouldn't. Or did you do what I think they did? I think what they did is that they had in Ambrose in the written pages of the book, which is laying around here somewhere, in the written pages of the book, they had some indications of Dyke being a little bit less of a commander and that they, they just took those and they slammed them into overdrive and they, they went over the top with it. I think that's what they did. And I think it was because they had 
a problem that I sympathize with, and that is that they had to tell a story, they had to tell it in a compelling, a compelling way, and they had to take the central cast of characters and elevate them. And part of the way that they have elevated them here, part of the way to elevate Spears, they chose to knock down Dyke. It also elevates Lipton, though, because at the end of the episode, there's a moment where Spears is talking to Lipton, and he flat out says, you know, since since Winters left, Lipton has been the leader of Easy Company, and pretty much saying that, you know, because Dyke wasn't around, that, you know, Lipton was the one that was holding them all together. Exactly. And while I think that's good, and I like that, and Carwood Lipton is kind of like, he is, you know... I, the series, whose character number one? It's Winters. Whose character number two? It's hard to say. It might be Lipton. I think it might be Lipton. And so I can understand needing to elevate him. And this episode does that. That's the big payoff for the Carwood Lipton character. And that closing scene where they're listening to the choir at Hachon and Spears has this beautifully written monologue where it's like, it's been you first, Sergeant. I, I love that. That's one of my favorite moments of this in this episode. But to get us there, they felt it necessary to tear down Dyke. And, and if I could just once again point back to this, I, my ideas about postmodernism as a subgenre in war films, because here we see a moment where Band of Brothers, I think, can't make up its mind. Because on an overall basis, I think that Band of Brothers is presenting us something that fits nicely within um, the patriotic paradigm of remembering the American experience of World War II. And that is that we fought the good fight, that we did the right thing, and it was the just war. But here, I think what we're also seeing is a little bit of a, a glimpse into a Band of Brothers that also wants to be platoon. A Band of Brothers that also wants to go... Because there's even a little line of dialogue that to me sounds very, very Vietnam to me. And it's this line of dialogue about it's a Carwood Lipton voiceover monologue point where I might have written it down. It's he's saying that Dyke always seemed like Easy Company was an annoyance. It's something to that effect. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There was something about um, I don't remember the exact line, but it was talking about how Dyke was he was connected and he he was using Easy Company as a step to something else almost like, you know. Almost like he was given this command so that he would have some combat experience, so that he could move on to some bigger and better things, or what you know, not that exact line, but something along those lines. Is yeah, yeah, yeah. And and doesn't that just sound like the old trope of every cheesy Vietnam movie? The ticket punch, the lieutenant, the the new lieutenant who doesn't know us, and it's a little bit of a it is a little bit of a, a cliche within the genre, and they have turned to it in a series that. I, I frequently just shower it with praise about how it got beyond cliches. And here's the series it steps into a cliche. And I don't particularly care for it. It doesn't matter because in the end, this episode is fantastic. This episode is simultaneously terrifying. And it's then simultaneous and then it's heartwarming. It pulls at your heartstrings. It sucks you in. I got sucked into it from start to finish again. And I loved every minute of it. And I think it's unconscionable what they did with the Dyke character. And I don't think they needed it. And I think it was a brief foray into the Vietnam era heart of darkness with a little bit of a cliche. And can't I be that person? Can't I be the person that simultaneously loves something and criticizes it? I think I can. I hope I can. But because I simultaneously love this episode and then I, and it really gets under my skin and really bothers me, especially over the Dyke thing. Because 
when Easy Company joins this battle, this you know climactic moment on January 13th, 1945, and they begin the assault on Foy, you end up with a very complicated choreography of events that involves Dyke not crumbling because of his incompetence, but Dyke being incapable of continuing to lead the company because he's wounded on the field of battle. Spears takes over. Spears has to join two separate but simultaneously maneuvering elements on the battlefield. And there's a reason why they're not in that they're not using the radios to communicate effect. This is depicted, but never explained. And it's depicted as you see, um, you see Dyke, he takes the handset of the SCR 300 radio, a radio type that was called walkie talkie, because in World War II, it was the backpack radio that was called walkie talkie. And then the SCR 536, which is that big fat Motorola um, radio, that was called handy talkie. And so Dyke's on the walkie talkie, the SCR 300, and he can't get through to anybody and they show him have like a tantrum and he throws the handset down, which by the way, it just is, that's infantry officer lesson number one. No matter how pissed off you get, don't throw the handset on the radio down. You're going to break your damn handset. I think it's such a trope to show, ah, I'm so frustrated and he smashes the handset, but they show him do that while he's having this, you know, this moment of mental incapacitation. And then they show another element where they're talking on the handy talking, the, S- the SCR-536, and they're trying to coordinate on the battlefield. And they can't coordinate, and it's because the radios aren't working. And that's why suddenly this necessity emerges where Winters calls Spears up and then sends Spears in to take over. And a sequence that, although it's not entirely accurate, I think it's extraordinarily well acted I watched it like three times in a row earlier and I was like, you know, Damien, you really just, you, you hit it out of the park. And it's depicting this frustration where Winters keeps trying to lunge toward the battle and Colonel Sink is like, Dick, you're not in charge of E Company anymore. Come back. And it's like he's holding the mic on a leash. And then Winters, frustrated, goes, Spears, get up here. And Spears runs up and he goes, get out there and take over. And he turns around. And in that one moment, just in those few lines of dialogue, I thought Damien Lewis acted like a damn battalion officer and it looked it it looked so convincing to me it looked so good where i think the lesser actor would have turned that into something that looks apish and silly Uh, and i i'm saying it just because i like to acknowledge that i think that that was that he represents greatness in acting in this series and he really comes across as comes across in what we expect and that is for him to be you know alpha for him to be in charge and to be very direct and very decisive and these are the things that I think everybody, when they saw them, everybody kind of liked them. And it's because, let's face it, we're bombarded by a popular media culture today where we don't really see that, where what we tend to see are the extremes. We see like exaggerated, toxic male alphas. And then we see sort of the opposite end of that scale. And we don't understand that there are a lot of guys that went out there as citizen soldiers that they were trained into the role of becoming combat leaders and they performed it very effectively. And I feel like Damien Lewis really, I really, I felt like he's, he really portrayed that nicely in just that one little moment. But in this bigger moment of easy company caught in the middle of that action and Spears is sent to take over and then functions as not just company commander, but also as a runner trying to coordinate these two um, maneuver elements on the battlefield. And, And just for the record, easy company was temporarily assigned to the 3rd Battalion of the 506 for this action. And the 3rd Battalion, when the action begins, Easy Company spearheading the attack, there were multiple elements maneuvering. There's supposed to have been a mortar concentration that delivered smoke 
to obscure the objective so it didn't look so dumb. You know what I mean? The way that it's depicted in the series is you're seeing a whole bunch of men just running across an open field being shot at by machine guns. And then they're ultimately subjected to mortar fire. And it looks like something that I've seen depicted over and over again in the postmodernist genre. And that is that war is stupid and the people that fight them do stupid things. And that's often not true. It's very, most of the time it's not true. And that really war is often led by extremely intelligent people who think of everything. And as a part of that attack, what was supposed to happen is that 3rd Battalion 506th supposed to have laid down a mortar barrage of smoke rounds and that barrage got canceled shortly before the attack kicked off. And then the mortar barrage comes in late. And so they don't have the obscuring smoke that would have protected them uh, much better. And if that obscuring smoke concentration had been delivered as it was supposed to be, the battle probably would not have descended into that moment, that critical mass that you see in the series, calling for Spears to take over when, when Dyke gets wounded. And as a part of that, it, there was a concern that the enemy had gotten, as a result of a f- captured field telephone line, a live hot field telephone line. It's believed that the, that the enemy had listened in and that the enemy had infiltrated the communication network. And so as a precaution, within 3rd and 506, they had a, um, a radio and field telephone blackout that started right as the attack began. And the result was that the, um, so about 9 a.m., the attack kicks off. They're still two hours into it and they've made no significant headway and they're suddenly under this um, radio communications blackout, which is why you're seeing Dyke trying to call people up on SCR 300 and he can't get through and other men trying to communicate with him on SCR 536 and they can't get through. And then suddenly it's necessary to send somebody in to coordinate the two elements because, you know, maybe you've asked this question yourself. I remember the first time I watched the series, I went, so... Why is it that Spears has to run over to this other group? Why don't they just call each other on the radio? Yeah, I was wondering that. <laughs> yeah, you see people with radios in this scene going, hey, 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 what's going on? Why don't they just call each other? Why, are the, why did the radios all of a sudden just not work? And we now understand a little bit more about it because a point I have not made yet in our discussions on this series is that one great byproduct of the series, so Stephen Ambrose wrote a great book, HBO made a magnificent miniseries, and then other authors have come in in the years afterward, and they've filled in enormous amounts of detail, levels of detail that were not a part of Stephen Ambrose's original book. And I kind of love that that is that this HBO series that Am- that Ambrose begat the HBO series, and the HBO series begat about a dozen dozen books about Eco- Easy Company, that books that would never have existed if it weren't for HBO. And all of these books are edifying. They give you greater levels of insight into the personal lives of the people that are involved. They give you greater insights into the actual battles themselves, which is where a lot of this information is coming from. I'm speaking specifically of a book by a guy named Ian Gardner that I admire a great deal. And Ian's book um, fills in a great deal that we didn't know about this action. And it's suddenly, I think, elevated in importance. It's not just like Trekkies going to a Star Trek convention. It's not just sort of a a pointless exercise. I'm making Trekkies angry now. I realize that. But it's not just a a pointless exercise of fanish enthusiasm. It has actually led us to deeper levels, deeper, more complicated levels of appreciation and understanding for this one company. And Stephen Ambrose set out to write that book to tell the story of an infantry company in combat in the European theater from D-Day to Hitler's Eagle's Nest. And then these other authors have come in after Dr. Ambrose and have filled in even more detail. 
I think it's fascinating that Band of Brothers, the miniseries, created a gravity and it still exists because, let's face it, we're still under COVID lockdown. And I'm already, although I don't think I'm going to be able to go to Europe in 2021, I'm already getting inquiries for people that want to take Battlefield tours that include Battle of the Bulge in 2022. People still care. People are still interested. And it's not just old people. It's not like me that I can't get enough Band of Brothers and I need more. It's not people who were born in the 50s and 60s. I'm seeing people who were born after I got out of graduate school and they're interested in Band of Brothers. And in other words, they were born in the 1990s or after 2000. And they have watched this series and they love and respect and appreciate this series. And they're wanting to go and visit these battlefields. It's that is a is fascinating. This is a cultural phenomenon that was created by this. I mean, I know it sounds absurd for me to make this comparison, but I remember that when I was in high school and then ultimately in college as an undergrad, that it was sort of a thing for people to go to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And you maybe you did that too. And people would go and it became like an audience participation thing. And it's something that has fallen off. I'm sure it exists out there somewhere to this day. But back in the 80s in Birmingham, Alabama, it was a thing for people to get super pumped up about Rocky Horror. And it, to me, this sort of looks like that in a way. It's, it's, I think, coming from the same general direction. And that is that Rocky Horror represented something to, to a certain group of people in the way that I, in the same ways that I think Band of Brothers represents something to people. And ramp, and in a way, they're behaving a lot like the Rocky Horror people. Because I mentioned earlier that, like, there are reenactors from Belgium and the Netherlands and from France who will travel to the Boisjac and they'll go there in the first week of January and they'll camp in the foxholes out there. And to me, how is that different than Rocky Horror? Probably colder. <laughs> it's colder. And there's no popcorn. I think it's culturally the same thing. And that just shows you. Just And I think in the same... I, I just would love to hear some of the people that made this miniseries happen. I'd love to hear how they feel about looking at it now, especially when the actors come back and go to Normandy and then go to Bastogne. And people love these actors to this day. And, and I mean, our veterans are, effect, are effectively at this point gone. There are a few alive, but basically all the main Easy Company veterans are no longer alive to tell us the story. And it, I, I, I'm fascinated by the fact that there's a monument that I wanted to mention to you. That So Easy Company now has several monuments. And there's one that's slightly controversial that's at a place called Halt Station, very close to the Boisjoc. And... Now it's well known that people visit the Bois Jacques, which is a place where Easy Company was, although that's not where Easy Company was when they were shelled on January 9th and 10th. They were at the Bois de Fazon. But still people go to the Bois Jacques. It's accessible and it's on property that people can get to that hasn't had all the trees cut down. So people like to go there as a part of getting closer to the series. And there's a monument near that. Basically, the area of the foxholes at Boisjoc has become a monument of its own now. But there's also a monument that's in the town of Rachon, which is just up the road from Foy. And there's a very, very simple memorial there. And it's one of the earliest memorials that Easy Company, that was put in to remember what Easy Company did. And it interested me that when that memorial was put in, they chose Rachon. And... 
let's face it, that's not exactly the most famous place from the Band of Brothers book and miniseries experience. There are places that are slightly more famous. Certainly the Boisjac is, is better known. But Rashop was chosen because, and you get it in lines of voiceover narration from Carwood Lipton at the end where, you know, they, after the attack on Foy, they have a brief period of time where they're not directly in combat. They move up through a town called Cobru, and then they move on beyond Cobru to Rashomp, and you get the the now famous line of voiceover narration from Carwood Lipton where he says, and it was the first time we spent a night under a roof since... I think he says, does he say December 19th? It's something, he says since December. No, I think he says since Christmas. Um, but he mentions the fact that they moved in there, that the nuns brought out the the choristers, the children, to sing to them. And it's in that setting that you have this beautiful moment between Lipton and Spears. You know, it's always been you first, Sergeant, that line, that little, um, that little monologue. The reason the Easy Company chose that was because for them, it felt like we finally gotten through it all. And so for them, the area around Rashomp was, I think, viewed warmly in a way that those woods weren't because I am not all that convinced that those guys were super enthusiastic about going back to those woods because they saw a lot of ugly things in those woods. I could see that where the way, at least the way that the show depicts it there, it's, you have this, getting shelled in the woods, it's bitter cold, your friends are dying around you, and then just the, the contrast is you're inside, much warmer, your friends are around you, minus the ones that you've already lost, but you know it, it, you have this stark contrast of what they just went through to what they're experiencing there. Yeah, you get a, a moment of somber reflection. That I, that, and I think the series, I think it serves that moment up to us very nicely. Everything's candlelit. You have children singing. I think also there's a an element of the discourse here that's worth mentioning is that I think I've told you I did not work on Band of Brothers, but I worked on HBO's miniseries, The Pacific. And The Pacific was not a success like Band of Brothers. The Pacific was not well received like Band of Brothers was. And of course, that's, you know, the one I worked on, the one that didn't do well. Whereas HBO hit it out of the park with Band of Brothers. And continue to hit it out of the park because it's still memorable. Well, I think part of the, the secret to that success is that there's a cultural familiarity and that we have on a regular and frequent basis throughout this narrative, the, the Band of Brothers narrative, we have a regular and frequent interaction with civilians that are recognizing E-Company as liberators. That's Rashomp moment uh, just think of that reward and think of the payoff that is associated with that. We went through all that misery and that blood and suffering in the woods. And here we are and these people that we have liberated and they want to sing for us and give us some food and give us uh, and we're sleeping inside in the warm. Because think of how many scenes I kind of quit counting, but they're through episode seven. There are several scenes that are just men in a hole shivering. I'm not criticizing it. It's not funny, but there's no other way to present that. Then even in episode six, there's a scene where I, I where Eugene has like a bolt upright moment where he's in a hole with two other guys and he bolts upright. There's, in fact, the scene, do you know the scene when Lipton comes up to, I think it's when Lipton goes to Winters, who's the battalion operations officer, and he reports what happened to Hubler. And Winter says, where's Dyke? 
We are just sitting there shivering, literally shivering and trying to drink something warm out of a canteen cup. And he wants to wear it, know where Dyke is because the company commander should be here doing this. And Dyke, and then and, and Lipton kind of covers for Dyke as a part of that, you know, sort of, I think, unfortunate character development, those decisions that were made by the filmmakers. And I'm, you've already heard me. I'm on, I'm already on record for being critical of that. At any rate, there's a lot of this depiction of cold and shivering and another moment where we've seen this episode sort of turn toward the genre of postmodern World War II movie insofar as the way that it treats Dyke and his story, where he has to be depicted as the incompetent ticket puncher. And then now we have turned back to the more patriotic paradigm of, this is why we fought this battle. This is why we went through this, this misery, because we're here to liberate these people. And that's why I find Band of Brothers to be a far more intellectual appraisal, a far more intellectual discussion of not just World War II, but also the way that the American nation is understanding its military past. Because Band of Brothers, it's engaging both sides, because there's really two sides to the, to the debate. And that's flag-waving patriotic exceptionalism, and then nihilistic postmodernism. And this episode is giving us both of those. And in so doing, forcing us to have a discussion of these two ideas in American history that, let's face it, 2020 and 2021 have been a pretty somber reflection on those two ideas. That's why I find that the series is its such a landmark because, first of all, it's so damn good. Uh, but then secondly, because it's also, I feel, intellectual in a way that other treatments of World War II subject matter have not been. Well, you're talking about as Easy Company is there inside for the first time in a while. In the show, we see Lipton on his notepad making a roster of who's left. And according to the show, they entered Belgium with 121 men and officers and 24 replacements for 145 total. And they're leaving with 63. Are those numbers accurate? They are. And those numbers, I think, just by the, the simple and judicious dropping a little bit of numbers in is reinforcing what the entire episode has been here to do. And that is to tell us that there is a price and that these men are paying the price for that, for the liberation, because a central part of the, the didactical dis, um, discussion that goes on in this episode is, and, and isn't it fascinating how they can, they almost, they almost like distract us by making it a compelling human drama. And during that time, they're also, while distracting us with human drama, they're also going, and we're going to have a bureaucratic reconfiguring and um, restructuring of the command hierarchy within the infantry company. Something that the lesser writer would just turn into miserable boredom, right? But there is a restructuring that occurs because this, this restructuring that emerges is that first platoon is under Lieutenant Jack Foley. Second platoon ends up under Lipton. Because, of course, what is waiting at the end of this? The payoff? taking Lipton and making him our star character, what's the final thing that happens with him as a part of his story arc in episode seven? He becomes an officer. He's promoted to an officer. He becomes an officer in recognition for his leadership. So he takes second platoon. No, wait. Yeah, Lipton takes second platoon, and then Ed Shames takes third platoon. And this shuffling, which when left up to the lesser writer, would have turned into bureaucratic oblivion 
and it would have been miserable and no one would have cared. If it had been left up to me, it would have been awful and it would have been a disaster and everybody would have been distracted and looking at their phones. But we get a solid writing team who comes up with a very, very creative way of presenting that information to us. And by presenting us this information, it's also then suddenly becoming a reflection on the attrition. Look at all we've lost. And so we start the episode with what? Easy Company has a different company commander. And we're about to send Peacock home and things are about to change and we're about to have this big battle. And we end the episode with what? We've paid off basically two of the big characters, bigger characters of the series, Lipton and Spears. And, you know, just a moment on the Peacock thing is that there's this brief, almost cut scene. And it's, I think, deliberately a little bit jagged where they cut to this whole thing when Nixon receives this message from I guess it's from regimental headquarters and the message is it's sending him home because they're picking one man from every regiment and Nixon waves it off, which I think is fascinating because over and over again, how do we see this portrayed? We see it happen in this episode with Nixon who has an opportunity to to go home and he doesn't take it. And I think that speaks to the more patriotic paradigm that I was just, I was just commenting on a few minutes ago. And then we see also malarkey has the opportunity to become what? He has the opportunity to become a headquarters guy where life is good. And what does he do? No, sir, I'm going to stay here with the company. And then that gets paid off with like, why don't you just go back for a couple of hours? And he goes, that's okay. He goes, okay, I'll do that. That was to say bye to Buck. They brought Buck into it. And he's like, okay, well, I'll do that for my friend. Because I think the way Lipton said it was, Buck would appreciate that. And so I think he was more doing it for his friend as opposed to, I'm going to do this for me. And isn't that, isn't that a beautiful meditation on where we are now? Where, I mean, what other movie is going to show you people? What other movie from the recent historical time period is going to show you people that are like, I can't do that. I have an obligation to these people. We live in an era that sticks a middle finger up at ideas of obligation. It's all about you. It's an individualist. It's a, more of an individual, an individualistic era. And that's the world that we inhabit now, isn't it? I mean, we, this, uh, without sounding like a cranky old person, it's the social media landscape has sort of, it may not have fundamentally changed, but at least it calls a lot of attention to ideas of individualism and doing things for yourself and self-promotion and self-aggrandizing behaviors. And look at the, look at Band of Brothers, which over and over again does what? It shows us people who are guided and governed by senses of obligation. And I find that fascinating because I had a grandfather who fought the Second World War and I had an uncle who was in the Second World War. And there have been books written by people, sometimes with names like The Greatest Generation, that are meditations on this idea of is on a generational basis, is the generation of the 1920s that fought World War II, were they better people? And I don't know that we necessarily need to make the quality judgment of better, but I think it's fair to say that they're different. And I think that it's fair also to recognize the fact that a lot of what informed their day-to-day experience were senses of obligation and duty. And I, for one, am fascinated by the fact that this is a series that addresses these ideas, that brings them up, brings them to light, and brings them into the conversation because... I've spent my entire adult life studying this. I mean, I'm the greatest cliche of all. 51-year-old white guy that studies World War II history. 
There's how many of them? Basically, all 51-year-old white guys study World War II history. And I've been a cliche in every respect. The more I look at the subject, the more I am convinced. And I'm also a sort of dyed-in-the-wool postmodernist. And and yet, I look at this generation, I think I I see something special about them. I believe that they felt senses of obligation. I also just to, just to to interrogate ideas of postmodernism, I have seen the exact same character attributes exhibited by people who fought in Vietnam, people who fought in the global war on terror, and people who are still fighting that war. In other words, I'm not so sure that the greatest generation correctly identified what made these people great, what made What's, what made Spears and Compton and Winters and Lipton and all of these people? I'm not sure that they have, that the greatest, that Brokaw correctly identified what made them great. And I, because I don't think it was all about when they were born. Because, because Brokaw's argument is that it was the experience of being raised in the great, and during the Great Depression that made them and being brought up during the experience, the trial by fire of World War II. And I'm not so sure that that's precisely what did it. I think, in other words, that every single generation has a little bit of that in it. I've been around people who who are younger than me who have experienced combat during the last 20 years. And I see in them every single characteristic and attribute of the, that Brokaw identified. So it's clearly the the appropriate evaluative structure is not the generation. But I think it's actually the spirit. And so just the way that Band of Brothers has informed my philosophy about American history is that I've recognized through the characters of Band of Brothers that it's not purely just that generation, that there's a greatness like that out there um, among every generation that's just being wait, that's waiting on the people that feel senses of obligation and duty. People that do things like what Malarkey did when he waved off his opportunity to go be a headquarters NCO. Like when Nixon waved off his opportunity to go home. I think the reason that Brokaw saw it like he did with the World War II generation is just because there's so damn many of them. We put 16 million people in uniform, for God's sake. We've never seen like anything like that. And I don't think we ever will again. And so it looks like that generation was primordially destined to create the greatness that Brokaw saw. And it doesn't seem quite so generational to me now. It's just that the generations haven't been called on in the same way. Because I certainly see that a generation that was born after me, in fact, a generation that was born after I got out of college, they seem to exhibit the exact same greatness. At any rate, this is a a sidebar that you didn't ask for, but I still find that Band of Brothers is magnificent for bringing up these ideas. And and in episode seven, we see a, a couple of great moments with characters who reflect on this idea, this idea of, no, nope, I got an obligation. I can't leave. I have to stay. I'm like, I haven't mentioned Joe Toy in this yet. Joe Toy, who had messed up feet and then was wounded. And what did he do? He comes back to the company, even though he's not supposed to be back yet. And look at the consequences of, his, of that decision. He could have just stayed in field hospital back in Bastogne. He comes back to the company, he takes his place on the line, and boom, loses his leg. He pays a price for that decision. And what compelled him there? It wasn't what I think all of the postmodernists want us to think all the time, which is that nobody really wants to do these things, but they do these things because they're rewarded. No, I think he had a sense of obligation. 
to his comrades that he knew that if I'm not there, somebody else is doing the work I'm supposed to be doing. And let's face it, two episodes ago, Bill Garnier did the same thing. Garnier went AWOL from the field hospital so that he could rejoin the company. And that company then, you know, because he rejoins it, he's in Bastogne. I mean, even if he had stayed the full time in the field hospital, he probably still would have been in Bastogne. But still, it's a fascinating example of there are people out there that are governed not by our lowest instincts, because let's face it, you turn on the news and what what do you get now? You get bombarded by basically the lowest instincts of humankind. The news media, the, the television wants you to be disenchanted. I had the privilege of being in Normandy on June 6th. That would have been for 70th anniversary, 2014. And Barack Obama spoke. I had seen him speak once before at the cemetery on D-Day. I saw him speak for the 65th anniversary in 2009. I heard him speak again in 2014. And the president said something that will I'll never forget. And I know he didn't write it because I know he has speechwriters. I understand that. But whoever the speechwriter was, his speechwriter for the 65th anniversary did not do him well because his speech was forgettable and uninspiring. His speechwriter for 2014 for 70th anniversary knocked it out of the park because the speech that the president read, uh, he used the words of like, the world wants you to be cynical. But all of these people, and he gestured toward the 9,388 graves in the cemetery, he said, these people will not let you be cynical. And I know it's a presidential speech and that to be a true postmodernist, I'm not supposed to be emotional about stuff like that. And I know it's Barack Obama and all my friends don't want me to like him, but Barack Obama was an extremely effective media personality. And he had an extremely effective speechwriter that wrote that speech for him. And it produced a moment that I won't forget. And I thought it was a right on target because what the world wants us to be is completely cynical and the world wants us to step aside from ideas of obligation and duty and optimism. And World War II history, while it has plenty of the abyss in it, it also has things like Don Malarkey refusing the opportunity to go be a headquarters guy and staying on the line where he could lose his leg or get killed. And he chooses to do that out of a sense of obligation. And this is one of the many reasons that I absolutely adore this episode. I think it's, a, I think it's beauty in filmmaking and writing. And it's also at the same time, a deeply disappointing episode because of the way that they unfairly mischaracterize and misportray the legacy of Lieutenant Dyke. I don't know if you ever saw this, this excellent little documentary about the war in Afghanistan. It's called Restrepo. Maybe you've seen it. And there's a point where the main character his name was Restrepo and he's killed and it, it's all real. It's not acted. It's all an, a documentary of a journalist that was embedded with this unit. And there are just some of the meanest, toughest uh, airborne soldiers I've ever seen that at the moment when he gets killed, they are so thoroughly destroyed by it. Their morale is just is absolutely destroyed. And they're reduced to weeping incoherence at the sight of this person that has just been killed. And to, to me, when I watched it, it just, it hurt to watch it, to see the way that these men, these airborne soldiers who are 
at the peak of their physical fitness, how they were driven to the same edge that we see these characters in this episode of this miniseries driven to, and how it they just couldn't take that. That's like that was too that was too much, and it destroys them. If you ever get a chance to watch it, I I found that that moment helped me understand Band of Brothers to to another to a higher level in a way. And in this way, Band of Brothers, it's this because my relationship with the series now is twenty years old. It's the same thing for you. It's that we're all looking back now on twenty years of loving this series. And I find I take these things from other projects, like from Restrepo, and I pull them into this. And they informed and helped me understand a more. They bring me to a more complicated understanding of Band of Brothers, and and uh, we can certainly see that with Buck Compton. Buck Compton can handle combat. There's no question about that. It wasn't combat that brought him down. It was seeing people that he knew and he loved, people that were a part of what has in recent writings been identified as his immediate tribe, and to see them killed and destroyed and to, to and being maimed, and he could not handle it. His, but that's where his bottle ended up being full, and Don Malarkey was close, but not quite over the top. And it literally became, they. how did they get Compton out? They... They wrote it off as immersion foot, trench foot. And they used that as a means of getting him off the line. Because let's face it, you can use somebody up. And I think that's what this episode is talking about. It's about how these men who represented the absolute, you know, the apex, these are the most well-trained, well-equipped and well-led soldiers in the United States Army. And as a result of what happens around Bastogne, they're driven to the breaking point. Hence the title of the episode. And hence the title. Well, thank you so much for coming on to chat about Band of Brothers. Uh, we will be back to wrap up the last three episodes. But until then, for someone listening to this who wants to learn more, can you share a bit more about your work? Well, sure. If, you, uh, um, if you'd um, if you like to learn a little bit more about some of the work that I've done, I've, I published a book about the 507th that came out shortly after Band of Brothers came out. It's called down to Earth, the 507th Parachute Infantry Regiment in World War II. It's not the same story. It's not told as well, because I'm no Stephen Ambrose, but it was my attempt to wrap up the combat narrative of one regiment of paratroopers during the Normandy campaign. But I would also encourage people to go out, and if, and if you like the series, go back and read Stephen Ambrose's book, Band of Brothers, because there's quite a bit more in the book that you're not seeing in the series. And then I would in, invite anyone to go out and read work by authors like like Ian Gardner, who have, in the years since the HBO miniseries, they have contributed to the scholarship of the subject by writing and researching more. So there's plenty out there to read up about. And I think that's basically all we got at this point, because I'm not convinced that HBO is going to spend multiple millions of dollars to do another World War II 10-part miniseries again. (laughs) Well, we never know what the future holds, but not in the immediate future, perhaps. (laughs) You'd never know. What I'd love to see, in all seriousness, what I would love to see and what I think it is kind of the right time for is to create a story similar to this, only about one of the African-American units that fought in World War II, because there are plenty to choose from. Black History Month every year rarely, really delves deep into the subject. The 92nd Infantry Division fighting in Italy would be such a fantastic subject, and I think you would find the same characteristics and attributes present among the African-American soldiers fighting in Italy that you do among white paratroopers fighting for the 101st Airborne Division from D-Day to Hitler's Eagle's Nest. 
I, I was recently working on this uh, History Channel miniseries. It's not in production. It was the preliminary work, the pre-production work that goes into getting an H, uh, History Channel miniseries made. And I've worked on previous History Channel miniseries. And the one that we were recently pitching, we were going to do it in 10 episodes, like ben, just like Band of Brothers. And we were picking what subjects we wanted to do. And we wanted to cover a broader picture than just the European theater. But for the European theater, we were going to have one episode that was built on the Battle of the Bulge. And I ended up over the holidays doing a deep dive and research. And um, we wanted to kind of wrap that around a main character in a way that the storytelling suddenly looks a little bit like Band of Brothers now, doesn't it? Um, in that you're, it's character driven. And I, I found this character um, named Jack Thomas that I wanted to make our central character. And he was an African-American from Alabama who was drafted into the United States Army in 1942. He was assigned to a quartermaster trucking company, meaning that after D-Day, he was a part of what they call the Red Ball Express, driving trucks back and forth, bringing the supplies to the fighting front. The Red Ball Express sort of begins to, it's no longer existing like it had before after around mid-November 1944. And at that point, the Red Ball Express begins functioning on a more local basis around Luxembourg and Belgium. And then the Battle of the Bulge starts. These men are involved in helping Belgian civilians evacuate, which I think is a really interesting part of their story. And then as a result of the very, very high attrition of the Battle of the Bulge, which is something that episodes six and seven of Band of Brothers tells us the story of very nicely. As a result of that very, very high attrition, the army on a very brief basis puts some segregated units in the field. And they end up coming in the form of what the army called fifth platoons. And in a, in a number of infantry regiments, they have fifth platoons that are in segregated infantry regiments, meaning white infantry regiments, and they add a platoon of African-American soldiers. And so this guy, Jack Thomas, is given an opportunity to volunteer, be given an opportunity to volunteer and become infantry. And he takes that, he volunteers, he goes through a little bit of training, and then he is put in the 5th Platoon of K Company of the 60th Infantry Regiment of the 9th Infantry Division. And he begins fighting with that unit all the way until April of 45, where they're in a little town in Germany, not far from Nuremberg, where during an attack that stalls, he runs forward, helps two men to safety, then picks up a bazooka, uses it to knock out two tanks, and he is subsequently awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for the action. So he went from draftee to Distinguished Service Cross, and I, I think that's absolutely fascinating. At the end of the war, he goes back home, he's processed out, and he's discharged at Fort Benning, Georgia. And he goes, spends a couple of days at home and then immediately goes back and re-enlists in the army and stay, stays in the army until 1967. And he is actually still serving as a drill instructor. And then eventually, I mean, he has so relocated his life that when he dies, he's close to Fort Benning and he's actually buried now at the Fort Benning Post Cemetery. And I find his story to be just exactly the kind of story that needs to be told now. There's a reason why that guy, that guy who could have just stayed a truck driver and never been in harm's way and never had a shot fired at him. But instead, he wanted to be up front. And he ended up being up front. And he proved just what he was made of in Germany in April 45, when he earned the Distinguished Service Cross, which is an extremely impressive decoration. And then I think he 
proved it once again when he re-enlisted in the army and stayed in. And he went literally from being a draftee to a distinguished service cross recipient, combat veteran, and a lifer. And I think that's a story that needs to be told. Sounds like your next book. <laughs> if I could ever get another, I, I would love, I would welcome the opportunity to write about him. And I was friendly. I was friendly with the only surviving African-American Medal of Honor recipient from the Second World War. His name was Vernon Baker, and he was a lovely human being. He received the Distinguished Service Cross in April 1945 in northern Italy, near a town called Montignuso. And then in 1996, under the Clinton administration, he was upgraded to the Medal of Honor. He was not the only one. Several others were upgraded, but he was the only one still alive. And I was friendly with him and traveled to Idaho, where he lived, and interviewed him and spent time getting to know him and, and getting to know his story. And then eventually we brought him to New Orleans. And he was a great human being and a great American and a guy that stayed in the U.S. Army. He volunteered for the Army and stayed in it until the 1960s. And he became a lieutenant briefly during World War II in the 92nd Infantry Division. And when he became an officer, it was only during the war so that when the war ended, he went back to being a sergeant which I thought was a very interesting quality of his personal story. And then he was completely content in the years after World War II uh, as a recipient of the Distinguished Service Cross. And he embodied something that I, that to me is, it's catnip when it comes to admiring people. And that is that he was very quiet about his service. He was not boastful and he wasn't overly proud of it. It was his, it was his life and he was cool with it. And he didn't seem to undergo much of a change from when he was just a distinguished service cross recipient. And that was, a, you know, that was obscure enough to where people didn't, he didn't stop traffic. But then he, in 1996, became a Medal of Honor recipient. And he lived in northern Idaho around a whole lot of white people. And it was funny to, uh, he lived near this town called St. Mary's. And when I went to interview him, we, I stayed in St. Mary's and he came in and we went to this diner one morning. And when we did that and he walked into this diner, every person in that diner stood because he was in the, he was in the room. They would not be seated in his presence until he said, everybody sit down, stop it, sit down. And then it was just this procession of well-wishers and people wanted to come by just to shake his hand. These are the stories that I feel like need to be made more conspicuous. And that's why I would wish that I wish HBO would spend the kind of money that they did on Band of Brothers to make something that would tell stories like Jack Thomas and Vernon Baker. And there are hundreds of other stories out there that would narrate the African-American experience in World War II to a significant, a significant degree, because I believe that they had the same senses of duty, optimism, and sacrifice that the men depicted in Band of Brothers had. I think that their experience is no different, aside from the fact that they dealt with, of course, overt racism and, and segregation. But I still think that they were American patriots the same way that all of the men that we've just talked about in these two episodes were. Maybe one day. Maybe one day we can hope. We can hope. <laughs> Maybe one day. Maybe one day. I, I certainly hope so. That would be... I, I, I would... Um, renew my HBO subscription and and I would pop popcorn to watch those episodes the way I did 20 years ago for Band of Brothers. Well, thank you again so much for your time and uh, we'll, we'll have you back to chat about the final three episodes of Band of Brothers. I'm already looking forward to that. 
This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. I'd like to thank Marty Morgan once again for taking the time to help us separate fact from fiction in episodes number six and seven of HBO's miniseries, Band of Brothers. If you want to hear another story of World War II, pick up a copy of Marty's book on the 507th called Down to Earth, the 507th Parachute Infantry Regiment in Normandy. You can find that and a link to more of Marty's work on the show's home on the web based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the real Rene Lemaire probably never met the real Eugene Rowe like we see in the series. Number two, it was on the afternoon of December 26th when Cobra King drove into Bastogne and put an end to the fighting. Number three, Band of Brothers' depiction of Lieutenant Norman Dyke was, as Marty puts it, deeply inaccurate. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number one. The real Rene Lemaire probably never met the real Eugene Rowe like we see in the series. That is true. While Rene Lemaire was a real person from the area around Bastogne and she chose to stay and help, we don't have any proof that she ever met Eugene Rowe because she actually was not working with the 101st. She was working at the aid station for the 20th Armored Infantry Battalion of the 10th Armored Division when she was killed by German artillery. That brings us to number two. It was on the afternoon of December 26th when Cobra King drove into Bastogne and put an end to the fighting. That is, well, that's the lie. It is true that it was on the afternoon of December 26, 1944, that an M4 Sherman tank named Cobra King, or nicknamed Cobra King, was famously the first unit of the 4th Armored Division of Patton's 3rd Army that helped relieve the 101st at Bastogne. But this one is the lie because there was just a small corridor to the south. That meant Bastogne was not surrounded anymore, but it also does not mean that the Germans just left. The fighting did not stop there. The fighting raged on, and as Marty explained it, in some ways, it even got worse. That means number three is also true. Band of Brothers' depiction of Lieutenant Norman Dyke was, as Marty puts it, deeply inaccurate. As Marty told us, the way the show depicted Lieutenant Dyke as an incompetent leader who froze under pressure when leading Easy Company into the attack on Foy was probably his biggest issue with the entire miniseries. In truth, the reason why Spears takes over command of Easy was because Dyke was wounded. He was shot in the shoulder and he could no longer continue to command the unit in action. That just about wraps up our time together today. Before we go, the last thing I like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating this episode. I know that's not something that most podcasts do, and that's exactly why I'm sharing this information. If there's one thing that is surprising to most people who are new to podcasting or who have never created a podcast before, it's just how much time goes into creating them. So I figure maybe if you find out more about how much time and money goes into creating a podcast like mine, then maybe you'll start to appreciate all the podcasts you listen to for free just a little bit more. With that said, today's episode took a total of 46 hours to create and cost $10.21 in out-of-pocket expenses. As I always do, I want to make it clear that time and cost is only my time for this one episode. In other words, that 46 hours 
does not include my guest time researching the subject matter we talked about. It also does not include the time it takes for me to do podcast-related things that are not a part of this one episode. For example, the time it takes to maintain the Based on a True Story website, do social media, email newsletter, reaching out to guests, and all the other little things that go outside creating this single podcast episode that are still required to make the show overall. Similarly, on the expenses side, that $10.21 is just for things specifically for this one episode. It does not include all the podcast-related things that go beyond making a single episode. For example, the cost of the microphone I'm talking into right now. The cable is hooked up to the microphone. It goes into an audio interface. The cost of that. The cost of the computer that the audio interface is plugged into. The software that I have to pay for in order to record everything. And then, of course, there's the ongoing podcast and website hosting costs and on and on. All of those things boil down to costing a few hundred dollars on average every single month in out-of-pocket expenses. And then, of course, there's the time to set up and maintain all of those things. That goes beyond that $46 or 46 hours and $10.21 that I mentioned earlier. All of that is on top of those things. In a nutshell, this podcast is free to listen to, but it is not free to create. And that is why I am so thankful for the sponsors whose ads you've heard on this episode. You can find more information about them over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash advertisers. But they're not the only ones helping to keep this show alive. There are wonderful people just like you who are helping to keep this show financially going. So if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you will consider helping to support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And as a bonus, you will get access to the producer's feed, which, as of this recording, has over 65 exclusive minisodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes like this one. You can find out how to get access to all of that by supporting the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.